Dear Heavenly Father, what a difference a day makes. What a beautiful, sunshiny, cool, crisp day you've given us. Thank you so much for your mercies. And this morning, as we come together as a group, we venture to open your word. And Lord, this topic that we're going to be studying today is the great controversy. Something that is not just theoretical, but is happening right now. We have a part to play in it. So Lord, give our minds focus. Help us to be sharp in our thinking, quick in our learning. But more than just an academic course or some sort of trivial pursuit of interesting collection of facts, help us even in this room today to have a heart-changing experience. Help us to see Jesus and by beholding to become changed like Jesus, ready to see him again soon and very soon. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. What I would like you to do, again, we're, this is the one we're going to be going through, but for this point now, just tuck it away and we'll revisit it at the end of our study. Okay? But what we want to do is give you the big background and then show how this can be a tool to teach that. Okay? So for right now, what I'd like to do is take out your Bible and some notes. I'm assuming we all have Bibles and we all have notes. Yes? Excellent. We're going to go to Matthew chapter 13. And as we find Matthew chapter 13, let me give you a few other preliminary thoughts. In my estimation, and I think there are many who would agree that every one of these studies is important. Every one stands alone as its own thing. But in the Seventh-day Adventist understanding of the Bible, what I believe the Bible itself conveys, is not just a smorgasbord of truths. Oh, there is a Sabbath. There is a heavenly sanctuary. Over there is creation. Over there is the cross. And you can mix and mingle and have three-quarters this, five-eighths that. Or, no, no, no. That what you have in the Bible is an entire, what Sister White would call the system of truth, right? An interdependent structure, like a woven fabric, where if you pull one thread, the whole thing unravels, right? Think about what happens if you get something like the state of the dead, which is a very formative thing, it's right there in Genesis 2 and 3, what life is and what death is. But if you're off on what happens when you die, will that, will that impact what you understand about the judgment? Sure. What about the second coming? Sure. What about the millennium? Yes. What about the destruction of the wicked and the nature of hell? Yes. I mean, some massive things unravel just by moving that one thing, adding you shall not surely die. <sighs> the whole thing's gone, right? What I want to show you today is that the great controversy is the overarching platform. It is the template in which every other thing that we're going to study fits into. Okay? The reason this study is so important, it is the foundation of the entire edifice of Seventh-day Adventist theology. It is the foundational principle. So whenever we get this concept straight in our heads, we see the parameters that the Bible outlines of this story, the great controversy, that it gives a context into which things like the calling of Israel in the Old Testament, and the flood, and the cross, and the early Christian church, and even the prophecies of Daniel and Revelation, everything, end time events included, fits inside of this box. So what we're doing today is building the box that all the other studies fit inside. And that's going to be important because when you get to something like, say, the Sabbath versus Sunday issue, if you've established this framework, then you're not talking about just which day is correct. 
You're talking about loyalties. You're talking about allegiances between two spiritual forces that are real and battling right now. Okay? So it gives a bet. So when you make appeals for those things like those, quote, salvation issues, remember talking about yesterday? It's no longer about do I do this or do I not do this? It's about I'm choosing sides in the great war and I want to show my loyalty. Nothing about legalism, but it's everything to do with loyalty. Right? That's what we're going to cover today. So let's go to Matthew chapter 13 as we start. Our first of, like I said, four distinct phases in this great controversy study. Matthew chapter 13, Jesus here, the whole chapter, by the way, if you look at Matthew chapter 13, is just chuck full of what? Does anybody see it? Just scan real quick. If your Bible has headings, what do you see? Parables, right? It starts with a parable. Then there's the purpose of parables, and the parable is explained. And then there's the parable of the wheat and tares, the parable of the mustard seed, the parable of the leaven, the parable, terrible parable, parable, hidden treasure, great price, dragnet, lots of parables. We're going to focus on one of those parables today, and it's the one that starts in verse 24. And we're going to see why, because it's the one his disciples focused on as well. But let's start here in verse 24, and we're going to read it as Randy Skeet likes to say, microscopically. We're going to get an overview, but we're going to break it down into its elemental nuts and bolts. I know, that wasn't a good Randy Skeet impression. I don't know anyone who can do it, so I'm off the hook. Okay, Matthew chapter 13, verse 24, another parable he put forth to them, saying, The kingdom of heaven is like a man who sowed good seed in his field. So already we have three parts that he's introduced it to. There's a man. What's the next element? Good seed. And what's the third thing? His field. But, verse 25, as simple as that sounded, the plot thickens. But while men slept, I often have the phrase, pause right here. We're going to keep reading this text, but I want to drop an idea in your head that we're not going to resolve right now, but we'll come back to in just a couple minutes. I want you to start thinking, Who are these men, and what does it mean that they're sleeping? Okay, but for right now, let's just look at the parable on the face value. Again, verse 24, another parable he put forth to them, saying, The kingdom of heaven is like a man who sowed good seed in his field, but while men slept, his, what's our word? Enemy came and sowed tares among the wheat and went his way. So now we have the first sentence, very simple, let's overview. There's a man, and has put a bag of seed in his hand, right? And what is the condition of the seed? Good. And he's going out to sow it where? In a field. Not just a field, whose field? His field. So the man is the owner of the field, the sower is the owner. So he doesn't delegate the sowing of the seed, he sows his own seed in his own field. And it's good seed. On the same page? Right? So you get the idea, task is complete, but, transition point, while men slept, whoever these men are, introduces a new character, an enemy, sneaks in, and he sows tares or weeds among the wheat. And then what does that enemy do? And went his way. So notice he comes in under the cover of darkness when men are sleeping, does his baleful task of sowing the tares, and then slinks away, all done. Now, verse 26, but when the grain had sprouted and produced a crop, then the tares also appeared. I think each element of this is critical. 
I'll tell you a little bit about myself here. I am, I think they have some good things about me, but there's some character defects as well. One of which is sometimes I lack patience, and that's why I'm not a particularly good gardener. Gardening requires patience. I can remember as a, a young person coming to such things like, you know, children's division, camp meeting things, or vacation Bible schools, or little Sabbath school things where they would give you a cup with some dirt and a seed, and they tell you to go home and water it and put it in the sunlight and watch it, you know. Well, when you put the seed in, I would hope that the next day it'd be like some sort of Jack and the Beanstalk experience. Like, you know. But what do, I come, what do I see the next day? A cup of dirt. And I said, it's all right, I'll practice patience. But you know what I'd see the next day? Dirt. And the day after that, dirt. And at some point, I just say, well, this is dumb. This is ridiculous. Why am I wasting my time? And I just throw the whole thing out. That's, that's the problem I have, right? Now, let's apply this to the parable. Again, we're not to the interpretation yet. We just want to make sure we understand the parable on the surface value. The next day, did the crop spring up and you could tell, oh, there's wheat and there's tares? No, look at the parable again. Look at verse 26. But when the grain had sprouted and produced a crop, which is an inference that this took some time to see the condition of the field. When the grain had sprouted and produced a crop, then the tares also appeared. So the servants of the owner, now remember, trying to remember, who are these men who are sleeping? Now we're introduced to the servants of the owners. I'm going to go ahead and postulate these are the same group of people. The men who are sleeping were the servants of the owners, the guys who work for him in his field. It was, they weren't paying attention. They were asleep. They didn't know. So when they notice that there's a problem, because I'm guessing, and this is just my interpretation of it, but I'm guessing that when he sowed the good seed, it wasn't just random tossing it out, right? He probably had a method to it. It probably looked good. He could probably look and say, well done, you know? And you would have even rows, evenly distributed, blah, 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 blah. But I'm guessing the enemy in the nightfall didn't really care to move it orderly. He just kind of scattered it indiscriminately. So you start to see, even though you don't see the full crop in bloom, you start to notice. It doesn't take long. You're just like, ah, something looks a little, heh, you know? So, quick question. Why don't the servants go ask the enemy why he did that? Come on. I'm trying to get out of my vocabulary things like, let's think logically, because there is no other way to think. If you're thinking at all, it's with logic. <laughs> no, nope. it's the wrong answer. It's a good answer, though, but it's wrong. <laughs> Thank you. Do they even know there is an enemy? No. All they know is there's a field and a guy who owns it, who sowed the seed, who paid them to work for him. And he's reported to them, hey, I've just gone ahead and sown seed. It's a good seed. It's going to be a nice crop. It's going to be wheat. It's going to look like this. But when they start to see that it's not exactly what he said, who do they go with the questions? To the owner. Look at here. So the servants of the owner came and said to him, did you not sow good seed in your field? How then does it have tares? Again, we're not to the application part but let's look at the parable itself. Are these individuals, these men, these servants, are they loyal to their owner? Well, not their owner, but the owner of the field, their boss. Yes. 
Do they have any questions for him? Yes. Particularly about the presence of the tares in his supposedly good field. Notice that there's a conflict between what the owner said and what the servants see. You said one thing, but we see another thing. You said good, we see bad. Please explain. Again, we're not to the application part, but as was mentioned earlier, uh, I think it was yesterday afternoon, one of the biggest questions that people have, non-believers and believers as well, is this, where did evil come from and why did God allow it? Let's keep reading. Again, verse 27. So the servants of the owner came and said to him, Sir, did you not sow good seed in your field? How then does it have tares? Verse 28. I praise the Lord it does not say, and he said to them, Oops, my bad. No, he does not. What does it say? He said to them, what? An enemy has done this. How much responsibility does the owner of the field take for the presence of the tares? None whatsoever. He specifically says, I didn't do it. An enemy has done this. This is the first time they've learned that there is such a thing as an enemy. Up until that point, there's them and the owner, and they all get along great. But this new element, this enemy, verse 28, he said to them, an enemy has done this. The servant said to him, do you want us then to go and gather them up? Notice they take his word for it, but now they're looking for the solution, all right? All right, so there's this enemy. We'll get back to that later, but what do you want us to do about the problem? Should we go in and let's fix it right now? And this is where it really gets deep. Verse 29. But he said, what's the word? No. And what's the reason given? Lest while you gather up the tares, you also uproot the wheat with them. We're definitely going to come back to this later today, but this, I believe, is a critical point. The owner allows the tares to grow out of his concern for the wheat. I know it sounds counterintuitive and a little bit crazy, but apparently it is in the best interest of the wheat that the tares grow for a while. Because what was he saying? to If you go in there early when you, can't, you don't know what you're doing, you're just going to be... Sure, you might get the tares, but you're also going to uproot the wheat. You're going to make a mess of the whole thing. You don't know what you're doing. You can't see the difference. You can't know. (laughs) Now's not the time. Now, notice he doesn't say, no, let's both grow together. and We'll just have a mixed harvest. No. He just says, not now. Verse 30 is the solution. Let both grow together until what time? The harvest. So this is not an infinite amount of time. It's a finite time, a definite set time, the harvest. And at the time of harvest, I will say to the reapers, first gather together the tares and bind them in bundles to burn them, but gather the wheat into my barn. So there will be a separation between the wheat and the tares, the wheat going to the barn, the tares going to the burn. And for those extra credit scholars in the room, look at that verse 30 again. First gather together the the tares, and bind them in bundles to burn them. So there's a binding first, then a burning later. But the wheat goes straight 
into the barn. It's the end of the parable. Because look at verse 31. Another parable he put forth to them, saying, and he just goes along his way. Apparently his disciples recognized Jesus just said some pretty heavy stuff in there. So they come back, verse 36. Then Jesus sent the multitude away and went into the house. And his disciples came to him saying, explain to us, and notice it does not say all the parables you've taught today. They have one on their mind. Which one is it? Wheat and the tares. Please explain to us the parable of the tares of the field. And watch what Jesus does. He takes each element and breaks it down point by point. And some of this, I know you're going to be like, I've heard all this before, but there's something in here that might surprise you. Just maybe. Verse 37. He answered and said to them, He who sows the good seed is the Son of Man. The Son of Man is a moniker that Jesus used for whom? Himself, right? Right? And I saw one like the Son of Man coming to the Ancient of Days. Pastor Board talked about that. This is Jesus Christ. Basically said, the owner, the sower, is me. The field is what? The world. The good seeds are the sons of the kingdom, or the righteous, the good guys, if you will. But the tares are the sons of the wicked one. That's the unrighteous, the wicked. Verse 39, the enemy who sowed them is whom? The devil. The harvest is the what? End of the age. And the reapers are the who? Now let's go back to our parable. What's that? Anybody want to venture a guess? Who are the men who are sleeping? All right, I've heard church, disciples, angels, um, maybe someone in this room already. I don't know. Um, all right, let's break it down. All the wicked people in the world are represented in the parable by what? The wicked are represented by the tares. And the righteous are represented by the? So whether you're a good person or a bad person, all people in the parable are represented as plants. So who are the men who are sleeping? Who are the servants of the owners who are going to be sent out to reap and harvest at the end of the age? The angels. Is it possible that the angels, while loyal to God, have some questions for God about the existence and continuance of evil? Not only is that a possibility, I want to demonstrate from the Bible that it's specifically told to us that that's the case. I bra- usually, I, I, I like to present this series as a mini-series for the public and call it Questions Angels Ask. Because we're going to see that the great controversy, friends, is not just about us. Oftentimes you'll hear very little light, trite cliches about there's a war between good and evil, and God came down to save us from our sins, all of which is true, but it's just like the McNuggets part, right? (laughs) It's the little tiny bits and pieces, but the broader picture gives you a depth that's just powerful. So... By the way, I'm going to put it on here, because I'm going, to, I'm, going to, I'm going to do my best to teach you this and teach you how to teach this at the same time. So you're going to learn and be learning how to teach. Okay? So notice we've only done one passage so far, and all we've done is Matthew 13. Okay? So again, we're going to have four distinct 
phases of this study. And you can do them, if you only have one time, you can do them real quick. Or we can spread it out over four studies if you want, or something like that. And we can talk about the logistics of that. But I want you to have in your head four containers, four boxes, four steps of this study. And the best place to begin is Matthew 13. I like to start there because this is Jesus himself saying it. And I don't care where, what religious background. If you're a Christian at all, I mean, it's in the name, Christ. You're a big fan of Jesus and you take his word for it, right? So this is Jesus explaining this concept. It's not some spin on it that our church is putting. It's right there. And Jesus is the one who explains and breaks down all the pieces and parts. This is not some sectarian, private, Gnostic thing. This is right there from the mouth of Jesus himself. So you start with Matthew chapter 13, with the parable of the wheat and tares. Okay? That's our number one text. This is, for the, for, in my view, Matthew chapter 13 is to the great controversy study what Daniel chapter 2 is to prophecy study. It is your starting block that everything else fits into. Make sense? Okay. Now what we want to do is identify who this enemy is. Where did he come from? Why did the evil start? And those are the very questions that most of the people you're studying with have. So what we want to do is transition to, all right, let's identify this enemy. Now, the Bible does actually give us some passages that pull back the veil and let us see beyond even the creation of this world back into the origin of evil itself. The next one we want to go to is the, is the Old Testament book of Isaiah. Go to Isaiah chapter 14. Again, as Seventh-day Adventists, I'm trusting that you are aware of all of these passages. None of these are going to be particularly obscure. Uh, we're not trying to put a novel spin on something. We're trying to look at passages we've seen all of our lives and see what it's actually saying. Isaiah chapter 14. So you go from Matthew 13 to Isaiah 14. And we're going to start with verse 12. Here, the prophet is lamenting and reflecting on the fall of Lucifer from the heights of glory to the depths of the grave eventually. Now, when you study with someone, they're not going to know that Lucifer fell from heaven or anything, but we're just going to say we're identifying this enemy who God said did the sowing of the tares, okay? Isaiah chapter 14 starts with verse 12. How you are fallen from where? Heaven. Notice we've got our starting location. How you are fallen from heaven, O Lucifer, son of the morning. Now, uh, I have three children. One is Henry, the other is Edward. The third one is Molly. Fortunately, it's a boy, boy, girl, so their names match their gender. It's good. Um, and we, we took a while coming up with these names. In fact, we, actually, we, had, we, we, we were mystery people. We didn't even want to know what, what we were having before it came, you know? Uh, but that puts you in a little bind when it comes to naming because you got, you got to have one of each ready to go, right? Uh, we had Molly ready before Henry was born, and we had to wait for three kids to use it. Um, <laughs> But when Henry came out as a boy, we didn't know, we were like, oh, we didn't see that coming. We, so we had to kind of think a little bit. Actually, we, we had his name just a few days before. We were like, what if it is a boy? We should probably get a name ready. Um, and we came up with Henry. By the way, uh, Henry's kind of a little anachronistic. He's a little older, not, doesn't fit this time frame, and it's a little old-fashioned. Um, we can tell when people like the name because they're like, oh, what a great name. You're bringing it back. Oh, that's wonderful. Or if they don't like it, they're like, oh, is that a family name? <laughs> like, <laughs> they're like, did you have to? <laughs> anyway, we like it. But one name we didn't even consider, didn't even come into our mind, was Lucifer. <laughs> yeah. 
right? That it, would, it would seem laughable to name a child Lucifer, you know? I hope no one in here is named Lucifer. I don't want to insult you. But it seems almost you would never do it, right? But is there anything inherently wrong with the name Lucifer? No. It means light bearer, right? Lucis, like in Spanish, right? Light. And here, look at the text. O Lucifer, son of the morning. The child of the dawn, this light-bearing, glorious being, apparently has fallen from heaven. We want to put this idea in people's minds, because this right here is a new concept for them, that the devil had a start, and it was in heaven, and he was once good. All of that is weird to a lot of people. But we want to make sure the Bible spells it out for them. Okay? Again, verse 12. How you were fallen from heaven, O Lucifer, son of the morning. How you were cut down to the ground, you who weaken the nations. For this reason, verse 13. For you have said, and these next three words are critical, what? In your heart. If you're saying something in your heart, does that necessarily mean you're saying it out loud? No. In fact, it indicates that you're likely not saying out loud that all of the dialogue is going on inside. Or I should say monologue. Hopefully there's not two of them in there, but... You have said in your heart, but what was going on in his heart? I will ascend into heaven. I will exalt my throne above the stars of God. I will also sit on the mount of the congregation on the farthest sides of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will be like the Most High. It's been rightly said that Lucifer had an eye problem. He was focused on himself and not just where he was, but growing, ascending, climbing to a higher estate, a higher position, a more exalted regard amongst other people, right? He wanted to be, according to him, like the Most High. We'll come back to this concept in a minute, but if he was saying it in his heart, how did anybody else know? We'll, we'll, we'll come back to that in a minute. <laughs> but it ties into while men slept, okay? Anyway, yet, look at verse 15. Yet you shall be brought down to Sheol, to the lowest depths of the pit. Sheol's the grave, the pit. You will be ended. So notice, you were there, you have fallen, and you will be ended. But notice it's a process. You were there, you fell, and you will go down even farther. It's outlining a process of his destruction, not an event. Okay? Then from Isaiah chapter 14... I'm going to put this on the same line here. We're going to go to Ezekiel chapter 28. The other primary passage in Scripture that pulls back the veil and shows us behind the scenes of the great controversy. Ezekiel chapter 28. Many people start this in verse 12. I prefer to start in verse 14, and I'll explain why. Well, first of all, it's going to be shorter and pithier. It's more succinct, right to the point. But also, they're already wrestling with new enough concepts as it is. If you start, for this group, we'll look at verse 12. And there's some cool information there, but it doesn't, it's not critical to the study. But it does add an element of potential confusion that might throw off their understanding. Yeah, this is, this is still on the line of two, right? I mean, you can put it as three. I'm just organizing my thoughts on the board here. You can organize yours however you want, but... Oh, I'm sorry. There we go. Is everyone getting a view here? I mean, I can tour it around the room if we need. That's the best I've got. It's got wheels. That's all we can do. Um, But look, for instance, at verse 12. If you start in Ezekiel 28, verse 12, you have a little roadblock that you have to get through. Son of man, 
Take up a lamentation for the king of Tyre and say to him, Thus says the Lord God, you are the seal of perfection, full of wisdom and perfect in beauty. Now, we understand that, that he's talking about Lucifer, that he's talking about Satan, but where's this king of Tyre coming from? Then you have to say, well, the thing is, king of Tyre was an actual power in the time of Ezekiel, but God was speaking to him as the vehicle for the real power behind the power, which is Satan, that fallen Lucifer. They're like, huh? I would recommend, just skip it. Just skip it. Now, that's not to say, if they come upon it, oh, what do you do? Well, you can explain it, but there's no need to introduce it right now because you're trying to keep their thought going, right? You're not trying to hide anything, you're just trying to make it clear. Now, what you get in verses 12, 13, and 14, I'm um, 12 and 13 are very good. Again, you were the seal of perfection, full of wisdom and perfect in beauty, but you're going to get that again later on. You were in Eden, the garden of God. Every precious stone was your covering. It talks about the workmanship of your types, pipes and timbrels. You can say he's beautiful, ornate, uh, beautiful voice, all that kind of stuff, but that's not particularly uh, uh, relevant to our line of thinking. I would start off in verse 14. Again, I would start off Ezekiel 28 in verse 14, saying, speaking, and you would just simply make this transition, the same, in the same way that Isaiah, the prophet, saw the fall of Lucifer from heaven, Ezekiel was shown the same thing. And it picks it up in Ezekiel 28, let's go to verse 14. See what I'm saying? And now you're there, and they're already like, okay, you skipped the whole king of Tyre, and they don't care, because they don't know. Verse 14, you were the anointed cherub, and cherub is another word for an angel, right? It's a type of angel, who covers. Now, for the extra credit, Seventh-day Adventists in the room, when you think of an angel who covers, what's your mind go to? Ark of the Covenant, the most holy place of the heavenly sanctuary, the very throne of God, right? Those carved angels represent real angels in a real heavenly court where a real God the Father sits on a real throne, right? Now, it was in symbol form there, but apparently he's talking about from heaven, where the sanctuary has its origin, right? Lucifer was one of those covering cherubs. He was the right-hand man of God, if you will. There art the anointed cherub, okay. This one has were as a little slanted, because clearly that's the position he held, right? We're going to see that fall is outlined in Ezekiel, same way. Notice here. I established you. Some versions even say, for so I ordained you. And I don't know if you ever considered that, but Lucifer apparently had the position of right-hand man next to God and was an ordained minister in the courts of heaven. God established him there. There was a service like what we had here in the courts of heaven for Lucifer at some point. He might have gone by as Pastor Lucifer. It sounds almost like, you know? But that's what we're talking about. In fact, keep going. You walked back and forth in the midst of fiery stones. Verse 15, you were perfect in your ways. So there's that idea that he was perfect, right? In your ways from the day you were what? So what do we know about this enemy? Was he created being? Yes. Was he perfect at first? Yes. Did he have a high position in heaven? Yes. From the day you were created, Till iniquity or sin, rebellion, was found where? All right, let's link the two passages together. Isaiah 14, for you have said where? In your heart. Iniquity was found where? In you. Notice the locus of the initial iniquity. That first rebellion was where? 
in the heart of Lucifer. Sin started in him. Okay? Now, most people would think that God created a, a devil who was sinful. Not, the, not what the Bible tells. The Bible specifically says you're an angel who was created perfect until... So there's a time of perfection and then transgression. And where did that switch happen? In him, in his heart. He did not wander upon a forbidden bucket of evil and just dive in. And he, didn't, he wasn't created to be Satan. He was established by God as a covering cherub. Perfect until iniquity. Now, we're still at uh, verse 15 there. So now we've only done two verses here. This is a very simple little study. Now we're going to go to the next part. What did God do about this? That you had this perfect being who then sinned. Wouldn't the automatic thing you would do if you're God is just kill him? The wages of sin is death. And iniquity has been found in him. But notice what the scripture tells us. And not only tells us what God does, but more importantly, why he does it. And we're going to see it in both Ezekiel and Isaiah. Look at verse 16 of Ezekiel 28. By the abundance of your trading, that's a concept we'll come back to in a minute. What does it mean that he was trading, peddling? Did Lucifer have a lemonade stand in heaven? Well, yes, but we'll come back to that in a minute. By the abundance of your trading, you became filled with what? Violence. Where? Within. Notice the jealousy is within, the self-aggrandizement is within, the monologue is within, the violence is within, but apparently this now has gone to, I should be great to, I will, not, not just I will be like the God, most, uh, be like the most high, but now it's even gone into violence. But still all of that is within. It repeatedly comes back to in you, within you, within you. So therefore, I, and you sinned. That's important. Therefore, I cast you as a profane thing out of the mountain of God. I destroyed you, a covering cherub, from the midst of the fiery stones. Why? Why did God merely cast him out of heaven instead of blotting him out of existence? I like that answer, but it's not right. That other one was the better one. But the chance to repent thing is an interesting concept. And this is not to be put in your study. Okay, this is a little aside for our scholars in the room, which is every one of you. The difference, because people will say, well, why didn't God die for Satan and give them an opportunity to repent, to repent and whatnot? Uh, if you read in the Spirit of Prophecy, Sister White makes that very clear that they're their position when they sinned was different than ours when we sinned. They were in the very presence of God, unfiltered, undiluted, uh, unhindered at all. God told them, showed them everything about his character. They had, he had been with him for so, I mean, they were, it was just a different standing. When he rebelled, he did so willfully, daringly, brazenly, and unrepentantly. So that his character was so set in his rebellion that you couldn't come back. Yeah, he bore long. It's not like he didn't try anything. Because we get the, when we're looking through here, by the way, there's no time element here. 
It doesn't say how long it took for that casting out to actually be executed. You know that a third of the angels exactly. We know that uh, it, it, was, it was a process, and we're going to come back to that. There was a war. There was a battle, or, or, and we're going to get that in Revelation chapter 12. It's a war of allegiances. It's, it's, a, it's a campaign of loyalties that went on so that every side could see what the issues at stake were, and their decisions were final. When we transfer down to this earth, the same principles were unleashed, but in a different place, in a different context, and we had a uh, different problem. For instance, remember our story yesterday when Jesus cast out the demons and the whole town came and said, please go away? Why did Jesus give them a second chance? Because they didn't know what they were rejecting. They didn't see the full opportunity before them, right? Now, if those men went back and testified and he came back and they still reject, well, that's on you, right? You're accountable for what you know type of thing. Anyway, but someone said the other idea there. Why was he cast out? Because there are these other beings, right? So let's, let's, I like to do this every time I do this presentation. I would encourage you to do it. If you come up with something better, that's fine. But let's put ourselves in the position of in the context of heaven, in our minds, when this fall occurred. That if God were to execute justice on the spot, what would it look like? Well, let's play the scenario out. Let's say that you have a, a day of assembly, let's say a Sabbath day. If, if, I wouldn't use that term if you're well, probably with your students, your Bible study interests, because they don't regard the Sabbath, you know. But let's say that there's a day when all the assembled hosts of heaven were gathered together before the throne of God for praise and worship. It was, let's say that there was one day set aside just for that purpose. <laughs> and all the sons of God, the angel hosts, the cherubs, the seraphim, all the different things, all the different creatures the Bible tells us about, the four living creatures, whatever, they're all there. And of course, when God sees people, he doesn't see just to them, he sees how? Through them. He looks at you like an x-ray. He sees your mind, your thoughts, your heart, your character. And so, whenever people are praising the Lord, he not only sees that they're singing the words and making the face, but he knows whether they mean it in their heart and mind. And as his eye that day swept across the whole uh, assembly of heaven, he saw that the insides perfectly matched the outsides of every creature. And what a beautiful, radiant circuit of beneficence it was, as Sister White would call it. Just everyone receives and they give back and it's just pure and holy and the harmonies must have been just ridiculous. So many parts and layers and praise God from whom all bless. And they said, the flow. I mean, it's just reverberating, right? It's wonderful. And he sweeps across the inhabitants of heaven. He gets all the way around to Lucifer, who just happens to be the one up there leading. Praise God. <laughs> but iniquity was found in him. And imagine in that moment, our idea of justice took place. Where God the Father says, everyone, wait, 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 shh, 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 shh. And I'm guessing they would all obey, right? Shh, and a hush falls over the crowd. And he takes a big deep breath. <sighs> Lucifer, can you, um, can you step forward, please? 
and Lucifer. By the way, we've talked about, is it possible to have something going on in you that you don't show on the outside of you? Oh, friends, I'm sure it absolutely is. <laughs> I mean, think about the mundane experiences of our life. Is it possible you see someone coming down the hall and you're too busy, you don't want to stop and chat for a while, but they're all like, hey, how you doing? And what you really want to say is, no time, move on. <laughs> but what comes out of you? Like, hey, good to see you. <laughs> now, that's not to say that you should go around lying or anything like that. But my point is, we all know what it's like to have something in that we don't express without. Everything the Bible has told us about the rebellion of Satan is happening in him, in his heart, within the violence is. So we know what's going on on the inside, but on that great day in heaven, he's leading. And nobody else can tell. All they know is there's shiny Lucifer. And so he keeps the charade going. Oh, yes, Lord, how can I help you? Would you like another song? Shall we take it up a notch? Here we go. And he's like, just stop. Just stop. I've seen your heart. And iniquity has been found in you. And I must say that the wages of sin is death. And right there on Sabbath morning, in front of all the angels, justice is executed. And the lifeless body of Lucifer <laughs> crumbles to the floor. Now, if in that moment, right, God the Father steps over the body and says, all right, where were we? Everyone sing. Question for you, are the angels still loyal to God? Yes. Do you think they would have some questions for God? Absolutely. And I'm guessing their first questions would go like, I mean, how's the, hmm, what ha I mean, you know, they may not even know what to ask. It's just like, what? Mm, mm. I mean, yeah, but mm. And he says, what, 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 wait a minute, I, t I sense that something's wrong. What, what's wrong, friends? Tell me what's on your mind. And somebody has the courage to say, why is Lucifer dead? And he's like, oh, you're asking about the Lucifer thing. Yeah. <laughs> and then his answer is this. Oh, don't worry about that. Trust me. Let's sing. Praise God from... And I'm guessing for people would have sung, right? <laughs> but would there be something different? Sure. Now, let's take it to a deeper level. He would have absolutely killed. Would God, by the way, have been just and righteous in destroying Satan the moment the iniquity arose? Yes. But it wouldn't have worked for the goal he was trying to attain. All he would have done was kill the rebel. But he would not have ended the rebellion itself. In fact, he could have spread the virus. I don't know who the next guy's name would be, but it might be Gabriel. We might be today talking about the second Lucifer or something like that. And God knew that if I end this the wrong way, it won't actually end. 
And we want to establish in people's minds is not God's dealing with evil is not just a way or the best way. It's the only way that it'll actually work. God would have been righteous and just if he'd have killed Satan the moment sin sprang up. But for those watching, he had to allow him to continue. Now, that sounds like a really interesting story, but where do we get that from the Bible? Go back now to our passages here. You can stay right here in verse, um, I mean, Ezekiel 28. I would just have a pause and give them that illustration. Then you keep reading. Verse 17. Your heart was lifted up because of your beauty. You corrupted your wisdom for the sake of your splendor. I cast you to the ground. I laid you before kings. Why? That they might, what? Gaze at you. Tell me what is, give me a synonym for gaze. Stare, peer, watch, look, right? It's not a passing glance. It's not like, oh, they saw you. Good, I got it in my head. No, no, no. It's a gazing with an idea of studying it, taking it in, gathering up this information, right? That they may gaze at you. Again, keep reading verse 18. You defiled your sanctuaries by the multitude of your iniquities, by the iniquity of your trading. Therefore, I brought fire from your midst. It devoured you, and I turned you to ashes upon the earth in the sight of all who saw you. He keeps going back to this sight of others seeing you. Verse 19. All who knew you among the peoples are astonished at you. You have become a horror and shall be no more forever. Yeah, I destroyed you, but it notice what it says, I destroyed you from the midst of the fiery stones. I think there's the concept of casting out. Also, both Isaiah and Ezekiel are writing this from the perspective of when it's all done. But you want you to notice that there's a process. It's not one shot from glory to the grave in an instant. He casts him out so that others can see, so that when he's in the grave, dead and buried, finally done, no one has any more questions. In fact, let me show you this in Isaiah. Let's go back to Isaiah. That's why I put these two together. Because they tag team so well, so harmoniously. Go back to Isaiah 14. And you notice how long we've been going with this? We've only done three texts. <laughs> Isaiah chapter 14. Now, you don't have to do it as long as I do, but you get the, I'm trying to get the concept in your head. Okay. Remember what it said there? Uh, let's just pick it up in verse 14. That inner monologue. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will be like the Most High. Yet you shall be brought down to Sheol, to the lowest depths of the pit. So why is there a process instead of an event? Verse 16. Those who see you will what? Gaze at you. Notice the exact same language for the rationale of God to cast him out instead of blotting him out. Those who see you will gaze at you and what? Consider you. Give me a synonym for consider. Think about, ruminate, cogitate, mull over, ponder, wrestle with. They're going to look at you and think. Friends, God cares what you think. It's important to God not that you just obey and do what he says. That you do it from a mind and heart that's in harmony with him, that sees why and does it because that's what you want. It's important to God. By the way, that's going to be a crazy concept to some of the other people you study with. Our Roman Catholic friends. If you ever go to non-Christian brothers and sisters, 
our Hindu friends, our Muslim friends, the idea that God gives any kind of consideration at all to what you think is a foreign concept. What matters in those, those religions is God is right and he doesn't have to explain himself to you. You shut up and do it. But we serve a God who says, come, let us reason together. I want you to get it. I want you to do it because you love me. There's a motive from love that is distinct in Christianity that must be shown in the great controversy. Okay? Anyway, notice again where it says here, um, Isaiah 14, verse 16, those who see you will gaze at you and consider you saying, is this the man who made the earth tremble, who shook kingdoms? It goes on and on there. Now, let's go to one more passage about the casting out of Satan, one particularly familiar to Seventh-day Adventists. Let's go to Revelation chapter 12. Now that we've studied Matthew 13 and Isaiah 14 and Ezekiel 28, now I can almost guarantee that Revelation 12 verses 7 through 9 is going to make more sense to you than it ever has before. That's just my guess. Revelation 12 is the great controversy chapter. It talks about the origin of evil. And it's interesting to me that right in the middle of the book of Revelation, right in the middle of the book, it has the little synopsis of where did sin begin? Why did this whole thing start? And where are we? And if you've ever read the book, The Great Controversy, she does the same thing. Right in the middle of the book, why did sin begin? You know, basically it's the same thing as the beginning of Patriarchs and Prophets. She put it right in the middle of the Great Controversy in the same way the book of Revelation does. It's because the origin is important. It's not just the facts are facts, it's the why is that the case, okay? Revelation chapter 12, verse 7, and war broke out where? In heaven. Notice we're going to see themes repeating. Isaiah, Ezekiel, Revelation, they talk about this war always starting where? In heaven. That's where the whole thing started. War broke out in heaven, by the way, for our nerds in the room. The word war in Revelation 12, verse 7, is the Greek word polemos. P-O-L-E-M-O-S, polemos, which is where we get our English word, polemic. People are like, that's an English word? <laughs> yes, it is. And let's look it up right quick just to make sure that we see it. You can see I'm not making this up. I will Google it right in front of you. In Spanish, it's polemica. Polemica. Which means a controversy. Okay, I love it. I'm going to actually Google define polemic. So you can make sure that's not an Adventist spin on the thing. I'm also hoping we can get some cell phone reception in here so this works. Yeah. Well, anyway, I'll just summarize it for you. You can double check it later, okay? But a polemic is a verbal or written argument, a counter-argument to someone else's position. Okay? It's not necessarily fisticuffs, right? Hitting each other. It's not like Satan said, put him up, God. And that was the war. They were not like tanks and bombs and bloody bodies strewn across the streets of gold. What we're talking about, there was a battle, a war for allegiances, a battle for loyalties of minds and hearts. There was a war in heaven. Polemic. A strong verbal or written attack on someone or something. That's the prompt, that's the noun. Second one is the art or practice of engaging in controversial debate or dispute. Thank you. Let's Google that. 
Google definition, all right, and we can trust that. It's right up right, right next to scripture. <laughs> Just kidding. This is a recorded. That was a joke. That was a joke. All right. What's that? Polemos. P-O-L-E-M-O-S. Now, but notice we got in heaven, there was this war. Michael and his angels fought with the dragon. I would urge you, don't get into the Michael dispute with your study interests at this point. Just let it be what it is, okay? The dragon, P-O-L-E-M-O-S. Okay. The dragon is identified in just a couple of verses. So just read through it. Michael and his angels fought with the dragon, and the dragon and his angels fought. Notice that there's this enemy concept, right? It's all tying together. And it's always Michael and his angels fought with the dragon and his angels. The angels are always in this. Matthew 13, Isaiah 14, Ezekiel 28, Revelation 12. It's the same picture. But they did not prevail, nor was a place found for them in heaven any longer. So the great dragon was, here's our two-word phrase again. What is it? Cast out. Repeatedly been cast out of heaven. But we know why he was cast out now, instead of blotted out. It's for those angels to understand why he should die. Now he's going to die. Praise the Lord. But it wouldn't have been good to kill him then. It had been right, but it wouldn't have been good. Make sense? All right. So the great dragon was cast out. That serpent of old. Now pause right there. Where does that naturally take your mind? The Garden of Eden. Because the question is going to be, how did that war in heaven become our problem here on earth? Well, when he was cast out, he was cast to the earth, and his angels were cast out with him. But notice what it says of him. That serpent of old called the devil and Satan who deceives the whole world. So you're looking for a deceiving serpent of old. And that's how we get here. That's your transition from heaven to earth. You're like, well, who did that come from? And it's a very easy to do. Just take them and I'll take them to Genesis 3 and show them, oh, there was a serpent who said, God said this, but I say this. And they had to choose a battle of loyalties. Will you obey the word of God, what he says, or what you see? The Bible doesn't tell us specifically except to say that it occurred. But apparently, this is my explanation of it, that, and we'll come back to this in a little bit, but the trading that was going on was his putting out of these secret lies. Because remember Matthew chapter 13? What were, what were the condition of the men when Satan started his rebellious, you know, they were sleeping. They were naive. They were unaware. They didn't understand. But underneath all that, up came this rebellion, right? So at the beginning, it was subtle, and, apparent, and there's no time element in Isaiah or Ezekiel or even Revelation for how long the war was and what all was involved. But we know at the end, Satan and his angels were cast out. So at some point, he won them. Now, if you want to go super deep, if I, I don't have the reference for you. You have to study it out for yourself. I don't recall, but somewhere in the writings of Sister White, we know that one-third of the angel hosts, and that's, a, I assume, a round figure. I don't know if it was exactly with 33%, but, you know, a third of the angels were cast out, right? But she does have the phrase, and I think the exact phrase is nearly half, were listening to and interested in and even had chosen initially to join the rebellion, but some were won back. But when it was finally done... Yeah, the third of the angels from from the book of Revelation, that's where we get the third of the stars were swept from the sky. 
but, which by the way, if you wanted to go deeper too, stars in Revelation is talking about angels. Remember Isaiah chapter 14, I will exalt my throne above the stars of God. He wanted to be higher than the angels. He wanted to be like God himself. Right. Anyway. Um, but there was this war of allegiances, of loyalties, basically a political campaign, if we're being honest, about who should be God, who should run heaven, who should have their loyalties, who should they obey. So we'll just quickly put these back ones here. I like to go here. Genesis 3. Of course, man was made, and, and if you had the time, you could go to the deeper study, because you could take a look at the world as the field, and it said the seed was good, and you look at the account of creation. Each day, God looked at all he made, and it was what? Good. By the end of the first six days, all that he had made was very good. There was no element of wickedness. So Christ in the parable is just recounting his own work of creation. And part of that creation was mankind. And it was good. It was righteous in the beginning. But something happened, Genesis 3, verse 1. Now the serpent was more cunning than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. Now when you get to that concept... Having studied this, even your Bible study interests who have never seen this before will not think, oh, God made a brilliant serpent. They're going to know why it says this serpent was more cunning because it's coming loaded with this whole war and this is a representation of Satan here coming to work through this medium of a serpent. And he said to the woman, has God indeed said, you shall not eat of every tree of the garden? And he starts building the same thing. There's what God says but let me show you what you can see. And he starts to build a discrepancy. So we go down to verse 6. So when the woman saw, notice it, that God said, but the woman saw that the tree was good for food, it was pleasing to the eyes. Which, by the way, was the tree good for food? Yes. Was it pleasing? To, yes. Please disabuse your mind that the tree was somehow noxious and toxic and icky and slimy. It's, it's not. It was gorgeous. It looked great. By all human reasoning, it would be fine to eat from. What was the reason they weren't supposed to eat from it? Because God said, that's it. It's that whole salvation issue thing. It's really, yes, it is a salvation issue because God said so. Do you think God cares? Yes. He wrote it down. Even about jewelry? Yes. But we're in the 21st. Stop it. <laughs> God said so. Stop. You notice that same seed of rebellion is in every one of our hearts. We must learn to trust and obey. Yes, sir. In Genesis uh, 2, verse 9, it's interesting that it says, the, Out of the ground the Lord God made every tree grow that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. That's right. Because some, sometimes people think that somehow... The tree of the it was a foreign tree, thing. It was like better than all the other ones, and that's the one that... God was keeping from them. Oh, no, 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 no. And he keeps the best for himself. And that was, ah, that's interesting. Every other tree was... All of them were pleasing to the eyes, good for food. That's right. The picture I get, and I could be wrong. Oh, I hate the thought of it, but it's possible. But <laughs> that God made all these trees and he just said, that one. Yeah. Was it... An, let's talk about the Sabbath. Is the Sabbath inherently better than Thursday? Is it longer? <laughs> Are there any properties about it that distinguish it from any other day? Only because God said the only thing that makes Sabbath Sabbath is God rested and blessed it and sanctified it and said that's a Sabbath. 
If God made Tuesday Sabbath, you better worship on Tuesday because <laughs> he said so, right? The issue is a battle of loyalties. That's why the Sabbath is going to be the end time issue because it's so clear, it's so simple. It's just like a tree in the middle of the garden. Eat or don't eat, that's it. That's it. And if the whole world can come up with a hundred reasons not to, because God said so is still right there. That's it. Anyway, so Genesis 3, we just take them there and show them briefly that that same serpent of old, that's where that's coming from. And that's how, verse, so I just read verses 1 and 6. So when the woman saw that the food was tree, uh, tree was good for food, pleasing to the eyes, and a tree desirable to what? There's one added element now. A tree desirable to make one wise. Now I too will grow and have that. Notice he took the same virus and offered it here. You will be like God, knowing good and evil. By the way, what does it mean knowing good and evil? Didn't they know what good and evil was when God said that's evil and that's good? How about this? I would say it like this. They knew what God said good and evil was. But now they would know. I get to choose. Whether Sabbath or jewelry or caffeine or fornication, whatever the thing is. I get to choose. I'm not saying there's no right and wrong. I'm just saying I get to be the one to determine it. That's humanism. That's relativism. By the way, sometimes when I see Christian apologists coming along saying, we would not know anything about good or evil if it wasn't for God. And the atheists come back and say, no, 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 we would know good and evil. We just get to choose it. But there's plenty of atheists who don't go around killing their parents. The issue is not whether there would be a perception of good and evil. The question is whose authority determines good and evil. That's the issue. Anyway, so again, we come back to that. She chose, uh, she took of its fruit and ate. She also gave to her husband with her and he ate. Uh, I would also throw in, just for the, for the fun of this one, these two kind of go together here. Romans 6, 16. He lays out a very simple kind of common sense principle that fits very nicely with this study. It's so common sense that he opens with the phrase, do you not know? Which apparently is one of Paul's phrases, and I know we're coming in for a landing. I promise we're going to take a break. Um, we've been here for three and a half hours already. No, just, <laughs> it's not that bad, but I say that so when you see it's only been an hour, you're like, oh, good, it's only an hour. Verse 16, Romans chapter 6. Do you not know that to whom you present yourself slaves to obey, you are that one slaves whom you obey, whether of sin leading to death or of obedience leading to righteousness. So when they chose that day whom they would serve, they, in effect, gave Satan the keys to the place. Now, if you would ask, are you a slave of Satan? Oh, of course not. Did you obey him? Yes. <laughs> you do that with children. Is that other friend of yours, your owner, your master? No. Did you do the naughty thing they told you to do? Yeah. Well, then they are. You just lost yourself when you went with some other authority besides God. Okay? You just became... Because we're going to be a slave either way, right? According to this, you can be the slave to God or slave to sin. You can obey one or the other, but we're going to obey someone. 
And our choice is to remain loyal to God and have the greatest joy and have the most fulfilling life. In fact, have eternal life. All of the benefits come from that. But Satan wants to think that it's better. It's more fun. It's more whatever. And Paul lays it out. You're either going to obey God or obey Satan. That's it. It's as simple as that. Oh, let me just throw this one in here too. Oh, yeah, it's the same thing. Yeah, it's the same thing. It's just transferring the same thing. Um, let's go to Luke 4. I like to th- show you this text too. You don't necessarily have to show this to your side, but I think it's just super cool. And I don't think that Satan is being particularly honest because he's the liar and the father of it. But when you're talking to Jesus, he can't pawn off his rulership of the earth to the fact that he created the earth because Satan didn't create it. He was talking to the creator. But notice what it says here. When in the temptation of Jesus in the wilderness, verse 5, this is 5 through 7, then the devil, taking him up on a high mountain, showed him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time. And the devil said to him, all this authority I will give you. Now, I like to ask this question. Was his claim to having authority over the whole world hollow? Was it a false claim? What does the scripture say about all of us? All have sinned. And to whom you present yourself slaves to obey, you are that one's slave. But throw a little extra on it in John chapter 12, John chapter 14, and John chapter 16. Three different times Jesus refers to Satan as the ruler of this world. Was Satan's claim to running this world hollow and empty? No. But did he, does he rule the world because he built the world? No. Look at why. And even he has to explain it. And the devil said to him, again, verse 6, All this authority I will give you and their glory, for this has been what? Delivered to me. It's been given to me. By whom? Adam and Eve. And ever since then, I run this place. They gave me the keys. It has been delivered to me, and I give it to whomever I wish. He was dangling the keys in front of Jesus and saying, you and I both know where this is headed if you don't take this offer. There's going to be that Gethsemane. There's going to be that Calvary. Or you could just take it right now. There, and he was free of, well, almost free of charge. What was the one thing he wanted in exchange? Verse 7, Therefore, if you will worship before me, all will be yours. What is the thing that Satan wants most in the great country? It goes back to that, I will be exalted, I will be like the most high. What does he want? He wants to be worshipped as God. Thus, by the way, it's little wonder that the end time issue is worship. The way that God's law says, or a man-made commandment says. Worship is going to be the issue. Because worship is simple another word for obedience. When people, somehow we've gotten in our Christian minds, and we'll get this out of our evangelical minds, and we're, we're going to dismiss, I promise, but where did we come up with the idea that worship is music? Oh, I had a great worship this morning. Did you? Yeah. Well, I, by the way, I'm all for music. I'm a big fan of song. I purposely choose where I sit in the sanctuary based on who I know is going to sing out so I can sing with them. I don't like being around a bunch of quiet non-singers. I want to stand next to the guy who sings really loud so I can throw in a harmony and we can, yeah, that's good. I want to have some church, you know. I hope you do too. 
By the way, don't just choose a church because of the music, you know what I'm saying, but choose where you sit in the church that you've chosen because of the music. Anyway, ah, that was long. Um, my point was, worship isn't music. It's obedience. If you say you worship God, but you obey Satan, that's a lie. All you're doing is singing. But that's not worship. <laughs> and on the wrong day. And probably the wrong kind of music. Let's not even start with that. But my point is that we've taken this, we've taken worship as to be an experience that I have. When according to the Bible, worship is obedience. Is that clear? Let's close this one with a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, thank you so much that we've had this time together. Please bring us back after the break. Help us to study more and see your plan of salvation more clearly. For we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Heavenly Father, thank you again for helping us to see at least the beginning, help us to understand the end. And of course, you are the end and beginning. You see everything. But thank you for being a God who communicates to us things we need to know. You could have left us in complete darkness, but you've given us the light of your word. Please help us to understand what you've revealed to us and help us be solid in our walk with Jesus. For we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, in step two, let's go to the book of Job. Job chapter 1. Describes this man, at least the first five verses, describe Job as a righteous man, a blameless man. He's a wealthy man. He's a father and a husband. He's got a lot of good things going on. And up until verse five, everything seems normal. Uh, it's a pretty average narrative, just a regular story in the Bible. But then there's a jarring break in verse six, and the scene cuts to some other location. And that's where we're going to pick up in chapter one of Job, verse Six. Now there was a day when the sons of God, please notice that is sons plural with a lowercase s, so we're not talking about Jesus here. Now I didn't say who we are talking about, I just said who we aren't talking about, right? The sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord. Now, let's ring out as much as we can. We don't want to overstep Scripture, but let's read right what it's telling us. We don't really read into. We just want to read it clearly. Apparently, there was a day, as distinguished from other days. It's almost as if this was a scheduled, appointed time. Now, there's the sons of God. Lowercase s, plural. Clearly, this is not just Jesus being there with God. And also, what else do we know? that they had to come there to present themselves before the Lord. If you have to come to somewhere, that means you weren't there at the beginning. So we have a scheduled day where these, whoever they are, sons of God, have to come to be in the presence of God. That's what we get from this one verse. Now, let's understand who these sons of God are. And I promise this plays into our great controversy motif. We're getting there. Um, I would like you to leave your finger there in Job. For the next few minutes, Job chapter 1 is going to be our home base, for at least for the first part of the study. And so I'll put that one up on the board. This is a Great Controversy, step 2. And we're going to start in Job 1. And it'll go verses, uh, I think we go 6 to 12. That's what we're going to end up going with. But we're going to start here in verse 6. 
And I'll put in parentheses a little side note here. These texts will go along nicely with, um, in fact, if you're doing a simple study, just go here. Luke 3, uh, 37 and 38, I believe, is what we're looking for. Yeah. Now, why in the world would we go to the Gospel of Luke when we're trying to figure out who these sons of God are? Well, let's go find out. In Luke chapter 3, it gives the genealogy or the family record of Jesus Christ. And it traces it all the way back to the very beginning. And there are, along this line, there are several famous names like David and Jesse and Obed and Boaz. In fact, it goes back even farther than that. And if we wanted to really slaughter names, we could. Uh, let, for instance, we'll just pick it up in verse 36, just to give you some context here. It's going backwards through the genealogy. After it mentions Shelah in verse 35, it says, who is the son of Canaan. Canaan, of course, was the son of Arphaxad. It's another name we didn't consider when we were having our kids, but... <laughs> and Arphaxad was the son of Shem. Shem was the son of Noah. It's like, oh, now we're getting the names we know. Shem was the son of Noah. Noah was the son of Lamech. Lamech was the son of Methuselah. Methuselah was the son of Enoch. Enoch was the son of Jared. Jared was the son of Mahalalel. Mahalalel was the son of Canaan. Canaan was the son of Enish. Enish was the son of Seth. Seth was the son of Adam. And then it adds one more step. Adam was the son of God. Lowercase s. Is it possible that Adam was a son of God in a created sense? As ruler of this world, remember that's what he was established to do in Genesis there? That he was given dominion over this planet. And so when we go back to Job chapter 1, there was a day, verse 6, when the sons, plural, of God came to present themselves before the Lord and Satan also came among them. We're gonna, let's just keep reading we'll develop this clearer. Adding to the idea that these people, whoever these sons of God are, don't live in the very presence of God continually, A, because they have to come there, and then look at verse 7, God asks Satan specifically. And the Lord said to Satan, from where do you come? Implying that you're obviously not from here, you had to come here from somewhere else, as did all these sons of God. And where does Satan say he comes from? Verse 7, so the, Satan answered the Lord and said, and from going, uh, from going to and fro, where? On the earth. Now we already saw in Luke chapter 4, why is Satan's claim to be the rule of this world not inherently or not fully uh, uh, false? It was given over to him by someone else who did rule this world. Who was that? Adam. And notice what Satan is making a claim, not to just be from, but to be over the world, to be the ruler of this world, from going to and fro on the earth and from walking back and forth on it. Now, you might say, but he was cast to the earth, right? But where in that earth was he given, was he given dominion over the earth when he was cast to the earth? No, he was given very limited parameters for exposure on this earth. Where was that exposure only allowed? But now he's like, I got out. 
Now I'm walking back and forth, up and down, to and fro. I'm representing that planet here today. So the question for your studies, who should have been there that day? Adam. But he had already ceded dominion over to this new ruler, and Satan shows up saying, I'm here today from Earth. Yeah, that's right, I got out of the tree. Satan escaped. I'm guessing that's when the meeting got real tense. But notice how the Lord handles Satan's appearance. Verse 8, the Lord said to Satan. Now, couldn't he just smack Satan and kick him out and just, yeah. Would he be right in doing so? Yes. But what's the issue? There's other sons of God present. We'll come back to that in a minute. So he has to talk it through. So the Lord said to Satan, have you considered, there's our word again, have you considered my servant whom? Job. Satan makes the claim, I run the whole world. And God, I don't want to say sarcastically, but he's like, huh. The, are you sure the whole world or just almost? Have you considered, did you forget, my servant Job? Now what do we know about Job according to the Lord here? That there is none like him on the earth, a blameless and upright man, one who fears God and shuns evil. He doesn't want you. He fears God. You have a rebel in your camp. And I'm thinking that's when things got even more tense in the meeting. Verse 9. Now, let's pause. And we talked about how this was a political campaign, and we've just gone through some political things, and there's a lot of political things going on in the world right now, and I'm certainly not talking about politics, let's be clear. However, I will say this. Wherever you stand on this ideological political spectrum, you have to admit that in this day and age, getting like 51% is a landslide. <laughs> How much of the world at this time in Earth's history was under the rule of Satan, who had given their allegiance over to him? Basically the whole thing. Except for this one guy didn't want to be ruled by Satan. He feared God and shunned evil. And the Lord brings up one man. He says, I run the whole world, Satan said. And God said, did you forget? Have you considered my servant, Job? Wouldn't it be easy for Satan to say like, ah, it's just one. You got to throw out that one judge. You know, they're always sympathetic. It's just, it's all, you can't, can't win them all. But that had been Satan's claim. I can win them all. And if shown the truth about who you really are, they will all choose me. Given the choice between what you say and what I show them, they're going to like me more than you every time. And God's like, well, that's interesting. Your theory seems to have a hole in it. His name is Job. Have you considered my servant Job, that they're an upright and blameless man, one who fears God and shuns evil? So this explains the reaction in verse 9. So Satan answered the Lord and said, does Job fear God for? What's the implication there? That's not even an implication. He's just outright saying it. Well, first of all, does Satan acknowledge that Job fears God? Yes, he does. But he goes to the motive. Sure, he obeys, but he's not doing it for free. You don't think he likes you. 
Does Job fear God for nothing? Verse 10, have you not made a hedge, of, a hedge around him and around his household and around all that he has on every side? You have blessed the work of his hands and his possessions have increased in the land. What is the, what is the charge that's being leveled against God? He's rich. Not only is he rich, but what's he doing with it? He's, co- he's buying influence, bribery, fraud, or what we today would just call politics, right? But he's saying, you, of course, have a supporter in Job because you pay him. Just read the first five verses. How great is this guy's life? No wonder he likes you. You're his sugar daddy. Right? You're just paying him off. Oh, well, let's not look for, let's not look for consistency and logic in Satan's arguments. Yeah, he is a liar from the, and a murderer from the very beginning. He's a deceiver, he's a, he'll, he'll manipulate, he'll expose, he'll buy you off, he'll seduce, all this kind of stuff. But he knows God doesn't play by those rules. And now he's accusing God of playing by his rules. He's like, you even are being like, let's just call it what it is. We'd all rather be like me. But I'm thinking he's saying this, having this argument with God for the benefit of all the other ones, listen. We're getting there, brother. I like you thinking ahead. We're getting there, I promise. Okay. But now, he proposes a test, verse 11. But now, stretch out your hand and touch all that he has, and he will surely curse you to your face. And I'm guessing that's when the meeting got incredibly tense. And shockingly, verse 12, And the Lord said to Satan, Behold, all that he has is in your power. Only do not lay a hand on his person." So Satan went out from the presence of the Lord. The whole rest of the book, from that, by the way, from that very next verse, Job's life just falls to pieces. And we think the book is about Job and his patience. No, it's not. It's about this conversation between Christ and Satan. It's a gate controversy. It's a battle of allegiances, of loyalties. And Job just happens to be exhibit A. But the real trial is, is God being fair? Is God playing favorites? Is he conducting fraud? Is Satan really not only the ruler of the world, but the ruler of the universe? Now, what I find fascinating in this is not only what God says and what Satan says and the back and forth volley between the two, but notice what do the sons of God say? Nothing. Nothing. Now, are they loyal to God? Yes. Give me some reasons why we know they're loyal to God. First of all, they're still called sons of God. Second of all, they're at the meeting. <laughs> they still have, they haven't handed the keys over to anybody. They're still there, loyal to God, representatives of these other worlds that God has made, yet they don't say a word. Is it possible for people to be loyal to God but still have questions for God? Yes. It's almost as to say, like, Lord, we're with you 100%, but he seems to be making some pretty interesting points here. Let's at least hear him out. God can't kill Satan yet because there's still questions that the angels are asking and these sons of God, right? Heavenly host. Now, let's go back, if we would, to a text that we've looked at before. This will be familiar with your studies. 
You can see, by the way, why I take extra time on the great controversy study. Most of the pre-made packets, the it is written, the uh, historicals, the landmarks prophecies, whatever, the, uh, the usually have one study on the great controversy. And it says, the war started in heaven with one verse, Satan died on the cross, cast Lucifer out, and someday he'll be destroyed in the very end. All of which is true. But when you give this study, I want you to have the whole backstory in your head so when you get to that text, you can explain, oh, this is why this is important. And this one links this way, right? So you're basically just using that study guide as a prop to get this in their heads. Make sense? All right. Ezekiel 28 again. This is text number two in this part of the study. We'll come back to what the thing we had mentioned before. Verse 16. After iniquity was found in him, the declaration is made, by the abundance of your trading. Now, does anyone else have a different version of the Bible than the New King James? All right, somebody's got the word merchandise. Anybody got a different word there? Is it all just trading or merchandise? Verse 16, by the abundance of your multitude of your merchandise. All right. So abundance of trading or multitude of merchandise, but it's, it's, it's couched in like terms of commerce. Yeah, what is he selling? I thought he was like a liar and a murderer and a killer. And are you saying he literally got in trouble for selling something? Well, yes. Let's keep going. You became filled with violence within as these merchandises, this trading uh, accumulated. It filled him with violence within and he sinned. It was therefore I cast you as a profane thing out of the mountain of God. He was cast out because of this merchandise, the selling. Um, let's go down to verse 18. It repeats this idea. Verse 18, you defiled your sanctuaries by the multitude of your iniquities, by the iniquity of your trading. Now the King James says traffic, T-R-A-F-F-I-C-K, right? It's not like road traffic. This is commercial trafficking. Um, by the way, it's the only time that word is used in the Bible in the King James. It's traffic right there. And you will find, if I'm not mistaken, Sister White uses that word traffic one time. She defines what that is. And I would show it to you, but I want you to see it from the Bible. Okay? As you want to show this from the Bible. What does it mean? What was he peddling, trading, trafficking, merchandising? What was he selling? Well, let's take a look at it. Now, this takes a, just a tiny little bit of explanation, but this is a one-off word in the Hebrew. That's why it was only used the one time. But the root word is used a couple other places in the Bible. And so you want to show where those come from. For example, uh, this is Luke 28, 16, and 18. But your little side verse, your support verses here, I'll give you a couple of them. Let's say in Ezekiel and go to Ezekiel 22. Ezekiel uses that term again, uh, this is the root word of that, one other time, uh, Ezekiel 22, verse 9. Somebody want to be our volunteer and read that one loud and clear? Oh, no, I'm sorry, it says 22. Believe it or not, that's a two. Thank you, trusting and obeying, beautiful, even though you can't see with your own eyes. Ezekiel 22, verse 9. Do we have a volunteer who would like to raise their hand and read first hand I saw, loud and clear? In you are men who slander to cause bloodshed, and in you are those who eat on the mountains 
All right. The key word we were looking for in you are men who commit. What's that first one? Slander. That's the same root word as merchandise or traffic or trading. Now, we're getting more familiar with that term. What does that mean to slander someone? It's character assassination. You're smearing their good name, right? Let's look at another one. Let's go back to the book of Leviticus. Leviticus, there's one time this word is used there. Uh, Leviticus 19, verse 16. Who wants to be our volunteer for that one? All right, first hand I saw. Loud and clear, the preaching voice. Leviticus 19, verse 16. You shall not go before as a talebearer among your people, nor shall you take a stand against the life of your neighbor. I am the Lord. You shall not go about as a talebearer. What does that mean? What does it mean to tell tales? Yeah, especially if they're tall tales, you know, a teller of tall tales. That means that they're, well, somebody's told a tale, that usually means that they're lying. It's not true, right? It's a false narrative. It's a false story. It's a false accusation. So this is where we get this idea of merchandise here, be consistent, or trading or traffic is synonymous, or at least it's connected to, in some way, slander and tail-bearing. Those are the root words that are used rather interchangeably there. So, is it possible that the trading, the peddling, the merchandising that Satan was doing around heaven was not selling things, what's nots and who's it's and thingamabobs, but what we was peddling were ideas specifically against God, against his rule, his sovereignty, against his law, against him, his word, his work. In the New Testament, when it talks about uh, false teachers, it says that they make merchandise of you. Beautiful, beautiful. And even now, in our own colloquial uh, uh, language today, we would, if somebody uh, tries to sell, sell you something, you say, are you trying to sell me something and I'm not buying it? Right? I'm not buying it. Because you recognize they're trying to get you, lure you into a thing that you would snap onto, like a bait. You know, you say, you say, I'm not buying what you're selling. Right? We still have that idea that false ideas are like merchandise. It's still in our heads. Now, John chapter 8, let's go to the New Testament now. This will be our third text here. But it really is tied intimately to Ezekiel 28 there, where Jesus recognizes this. Because there's times, times again, I mean, you remember Revelation chapter 12, he was cast out of heaven, that dragon, that serpent of old called the devil and Satan, who does what? Who deceives the whole world. Satan, you will find out, has only one effective weapon. Now, he uses two weapons, but only one actually works. <laughs> when Satan goes for just outright persecution... The blood of martyrs is seed, right? It actually spreads the word. He saves that for last. How did he work with Jesus? He, was, he didn't nail him to the cross till the very, very end. But his goal was to talk him out of it, right? And to lure Why do we go this temptation route first? You know, we want to talk him out. Deception is his primary thing. That's the only one that works. That's his most effective thing. Jesus tells the truth and Satan tells lies. 
Period. Look at Jesus, unequivocal about this. John chapter 8, I'm going to start you with verse 37, even though the crux is in verse 44. Okay? For your studies, you can go to verse 44, but because you paid the money and you're right here in person, we'll give you the extra credit stuff. John chapter 8, verse 37, Jesus was bantering uh, with the religious leaders of his day who very much did not like him and wanted to see him, you know, dead. John chapter 8, verse 37 He says, I know that you are Abraham's descendants, but you seek to do what? To kill me, because my word has no place in you. I speak what I have seen with my father. You do what you have seen with, well, let's just say your father. They answered and said to him, Abraham is our father. We are genetic, biological descendants of Abraham. We know who our father is. Implication is we don't know who your father is, Jesus. Jesus, I love the logic. Jesus just comes with such clear thinking. Look at this, verse 39 still. Jesus said to them, if you were Abraham's children, you would do the works of Abraham. Though your DNA might share his biology, spiritually, you're different people. Verse, (laughs) I love verse 40. But now you seek to kill me, a man who has told you the truth which I heard from God. Abraham did not do this. By the way, what does that imply? I was there with Abraham. I knew him. And he never once tried to kill me. You, on the other hand, claim to be his children, and all you do is try to kill me. You might have his blood, but you don't have his character. You have a different father, and he comes back to this. You, verse 41, do the deeds of your father. He still doesn't say who the father is, but he's clear. It's not Abraham. Then they upped the ante. Then they said to him, we were not born of fornication. We have one father. And now they take it all the way to the nth degree, God. Jesus said to them, if God were your father, you would love me. For I proceeded forth and came from God. Nor have I come of myself, but he sent me. Why do you not understand my speech? Because you're not able to listen to my word. And now he gets to the core, and that's where our punchline is, verse 44. You are of your father, whom? The devil. You've never heard a sermon preached like this. You think, oh, there's some tough preachers out there who call sin by a trap. We are weak compared to Jesus. You are of your father, the devil. And notice this. And the desires of your father... What was in Satan's heart? Iniquity, but what was specific about that iniquity? What did we learn in Isaiah 14? He wanted to ascend, he wanted to exalt. There was that jealousy, the self-exaltation. And as he spread it around, it built into violence. You think in the courts of heaven, Jesus, Satan would have liked to have killed Jesus? Sure. But what would happen if he's like, that's it. Let's just put up your dukes. <laughs> yeah. I'm guessing God would have like, oh, that's... This is not, the, not really a great controversy at all. It's barely a controversy. Flick. <laughs> Done. Satan knows he can't take him on physically. So what's his only weapon he has? He can't persecute God. Deception. That's his only tool. goes on. You are of your father the devil, and the desires of your father you want to do. He was a murderer from the beginning. Pause right there. Who did Satan kill in the courts of heaven? Careful. 
I would say nobody. However, was he a murderer? Can you be a murderer without actually killing somebody? Well, according to Jesus, yes. How did he define murder? Iniquity in your heart, hatred against a brother, even if you don't express it physically, if you're dwelling on it spiritually, same thing. Same thing with adultery, the same thing with error. If you regard it in your heart, that is the spring of all action. The action is simply the fruit. The root is in the heart. And he says, he was a murderer from the beginning. I think he would have killed Jesus in heaven. He just didn't have the opportunity. By the way, when Jesus came down to earth, he's like, I'm going to try two things. Deception. And if all else fails, I'm just going to kill him. And Jesus sees in these leaders. It's like, now I'm physically bound to the human, humanity that I created, you know? And we're peers when it comes to physicality. And you can get your way now where you couldn't in heaven. He's tried over and over, by the way, yeah. Anyway, it goes on. You are of your father, the devil, and the desires of your father you want to do. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he speaks a lie, he speaks from his own resources, for he is a liar and what? The father of it. The father of lying. Now, wrap your minds around that. Apparently, there was a time in heaven before the notion, not even before anyone had lied, but before lying was even a thing that people ever considered. That they just told the truth. And look how depraved the world has gone. Even for us to imagine such a scenario is hard for our minds to, imagine, is to, to even think about. Imagine if everyone, everywhere, always told the truth. You're like, slow down. I can't, even, I can't even put my head there. But at some point, it came across Satan's mind, with all this jealousy, with all this violence and everything, he's like, you know what I could do? Ha! I could just say something. It's not true. And at some point in history, Satan, for the first time in the universe's history, spoke an untruth. That what came out was not what he knew was true within. Yes, ma'am. I like that you pointed out that he chose. Yes, ma'am. Um, it didn't come out of him naturally. He looked at it, he chose it, and he did it. He was intelligent enough to choose. Yes. He did not just... He was not a victim of sin. He was the culprit. <laughs> no. No, no, it's not like sin is a beast that caught him. And he's like, oh, I got stuck in the bucket of sin. No. It came from within. The Bible makes that clear. And Jesus makes it clear. He's the father of it. He started it. Before him, it wasn't. Okay? So, basically, what we have is Jesus calls him a liar. He was around the courts of heaven trading and slander and tail-bearing. And you get the very clear picture of the war in heaven. It was not a war, again, of bombs and weapons, but it was a war of words and a war of ideas. And Jesus tells the truth and Satan tells lies. We think, well, that's very easy, but think about the difficulty that this put, the difficult position this puts God in. God only has one weapon, the truth. <laughs> and Satan can use half-truths and partial-truths or full-on lies. He can do a whole canvas of things that are just not true. God's just got truth. 
Now, let's say that in heaven, God has declared, as his word does to us, that he is love. He says, I am love. I love every one of you. I would give myself for any one of you, which that's what love is, is the selflessness, the giving of oneself for others. I am, I don't just do occasional loving things. I am love itself. It just comes out of me. It's who I am. But on the other hand, Satan apparently got to the point, just like in the Garden of Eden, he is not love. In fact, he's very selfish. By the way, you can look in the Spirit of Prophecy and she talks about how he went about planting his seeds of doubt. He's a sneaky little guy. He would do this. He would come across as being loyal to God, but in the midst of a conversation, he would drop a little insinuation, a little wrinkle into the mind of his, whoever he's talking to, and then he would leave. So, for instance, I imagine it would be something like this. This is my speculation. But they came from that worship service where he didn't die. And they're, oh, that was great. Woo! Every week we have this, and it's good every time. And he's like, I love leading these songs. These are so and today's song was great. But I did notice that every single song is always about God. Anyway, it's weird. It's crazy. Anyway, I'll see you guys later. Bye-bye. Right? And it's, it's not just our law, it's his law. Why? I mean, it kind of seems that the whole place is all about him. I mean, not, nothing wrong with that. He's great and all. But he starts dropping little, and then they had never considered it. They just, they just love the Lord. They don't care. They just love the Lord. It just comes out of them naturally. But now they've got the idea of like, well, why is it? And then he later on happens by when they're having another conversation, and he hears the one he talked to repeat to someone else. Yeah, I was talking to, I think, I forget who it was. Maybe it was Lucifer even earlier. But it said something about all the songs about God. And it, it, it got me thinking. Lucifer overhears that. And he goes to someone else. He's like, I just heard this guy say this crazy thing. And he starts to peddle around the courts of heaven slander against God. So that instead of God being a God of love, and selflessness, he's portrayed as being a god of selfishness, the very traits that Satan has going on in his heart. He's trying to switch seats so that God is the selfish one and he is the selfless one. He's just offering you freedom that you never had under the rigorous rule of this tyrant God. And so Satan says God is not love. God says, yes, I am. And what is Satan's response going to be? No, you're not. And if God just said, I really, really am. Here's a little key for life for you. And I'll say it like this. If, not when, but if you are ever accused of being a liar, you know what you can't say? No, I'm not. You know why? Because that's what a liar would say. You don't catch a liar by calling him liar. You can't say liar and like, oh, you got me. <laughs> They're just going to double down and lie some more, right? So if Satan says, you are not really a God of love, and God says, yes, I am, he's like, no, you're not, liar. 
And he's like, no, no, I really, I promise, I promise, I really would give myself for any one of you. I'm not selfish, I'm selfless. I... And Satan was just, boy, you're just digging a hole, liar. He just has to keep repeating the same thing. And this is where we get to step two. There comes a time when a mere proclamation of the truth is, is, is insufficient. What's needed is a demonstration of the truth. Do you see the difference? There comes a time when a mere proclamation of the truth is insufficient. What is needed is a demonstration. Jesus didn't just come here to say that God is love. He came here to show that God is love. Now that's a huge concept. But it takes us down to, why did Jesus come to this earth? Was it just to take the brunt from a sinful, I mean, from a, from a vengeful, angry God? No. Was it to buy us off the hook? And pay? Well, yes. But I know this is like a tectonic shift, but think it through. Christ's sacrifice was not just for us. I'll say it this way. It was even for the angels who hadn't even sinned. Because they had heard all their lives that God is love, but they have never seen it for themselves. I know that sounds like a crazy thing, but I'll give you some inspiration to back it up. I saw your hand. Hang on just a second. Yes, ma'am. No, you're good. This is a good pause. Go ahead. Well, I'm confused. I'm sorry. <laughs> Well, praise the Lord. If Mark did it, it's fine. <laughs> if Satan was in heaven, like he's God in heaven. Yes, ma'am. Was there already people on the earth for him to test? This comes back to a thing is exactly when was the earth created? And when, when it says earth, I mean, that's, this is, by the way, please don't share any of this conversation with your Bible study interests. This is all inside of a big set of parentheses, right? But... You can put together from the Bible and from the Spirit of Prophecy a pretty close timeline of how that, not time as in days, weeks, months, but a series, a sequence of events. Um, Sister White talks about the jealousy that was raging in Satan's heart came from the meetings that God was having about the creation of the earth with the Son of God, who, if you look at the Son of God, that's Michael the archangel. He, he's the commander of the angel hosts. He, he works with the angels. He, he, he not, only the, not only the creator, but also is the relator. Right? But look at Satan. He looks beautiful and glorious and splendorous and all this stuff, but why wasn't he called into the meetings? And so as this is being developed, that jealousy starts to build and build and build, right? So even when you get to Genesis chapter 1, and behold, the earth was without form and void. Was there an earth there? Well, it says the earth, but it was without form and void. So somehow you have an earth, but it's without any form and it's completely empty. So when it says he was cast to the earth, <laughs> right? but we do know that as soon as it was created, there was a danger lurking in the tree. Right? So it seems that he was cast to this earth, this place where God was creating or created afterwards, but there was already the danger that rebellion has broken out and he's going to come after you. 
Okay? But they weren't there to see at the very beginning. They were in a different position, right? So they have a different outcome. Please don't share all that with you. It'll, it'll just, their brains will just melt. <laughs> but it's good for in here. It's a great question. I appreciate it. I hope it answered it at least enough. Okay. Now, uh, going on. So we got the idea that Jesus came, by the way, can we demonstrate that Jesus came for something besides the, just the salvation of sinners, which by the way, praise the Lord, he came to save sinners. But that's bigger than that. 1 John chapter 3, verse 8. Let me give you a text for this. By the way, notice how short these studies are. You just got to really soak in the texts. But I, and in all seriousness, when you give a Bible study, I'd rather you share fewer texts that they really understand than a whole line of texts that they just don't see at the end. Right? Just take your time, work through it, and if they really are in the text, it's going to grip their attention. Don't worry about that. Okay? 1 John chapter 3, in verse 8. Um, he who sins is of the devil. Basically continuing the same line of reasoning from John chapter 8. You are of your father the devil. But he who sins is of the devil, for the devil has sinned from what? From the beginning. Now, does that mean from the beginning of this world, like in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth? No. How do we know that? Because it goes beyond the in our beginning. It's talking about the beginning of sin itself, the beginning of the great controversy. He not only, he was the beginning of the great controversy. His sin started it, right? He sinned from the beginning. Now notice this. For this purpose, the Son of God was manifested. See that? Because of what started there, he came here. For this purpose, the Son of God was manifested that he might destroy the works of the devil. And what are the works of the devil? Those lying, murderous, violent slanders against God. He had to come here and show the difference. God came here to end what Satan started there. Simple? Good. I want you to be able to take that from the Bible and show them. Okay? For this purpose, the Son of God was manifested that he might destroy this works of the devil. Now, let's be clear, and we'll come back to this in our next step, but it's not for that purpose only. And I'll, I'll, I'll give you a little sample of where we're going next. When Jesus died on the cross, victorious, demonstrating, well, we'll just we'll close with that thought, okay? We're going to come back to it. Jesus came to destroy the works of the devil by revealing, by demonstrating the character of God. For instance, and there are a couple corollary texts you can put to this. Isaiah 56, verse 1. And also uh, Romans 1, 16 and 17. A good Old Testament one and a New Testament one um, saying the exact same thing. For example, in Isaiah 56, verse 1, this is a prophecy about Jesus before he comes. Isaiah chapter 56, verse 1. Thus says the Lord God, keep justice and do righteousness, for my salvation is about to come, and my righteousness to be what? Revealed. What does it mean to reveal something? To show it. Right? If my hand is behind here, when I move the obstacle, I did not create my hand. It was there the whole time. You just couldn't see it. Right? So he came to reveal the righteousness of God. God did not become righteous when Jesus 
died on the cross. God was righteous all along. He was just showing it through his son. Let's go to another one. I told you it was Romans chapter 1, verses 16 and 17. Notice what after Christ died on the cross, what did the Apostle Paul say about this gospel message? Romans chapter 1, I'm sorry, Romans chapter 1, verses 16 and 17. For I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God to salvation for everyone who believes, for the Jew first and also for the Greek. For in it, that is the gospel of Jesus Christ, for in it the righteousness of God is what? Revealed from faith to faith, as it is written, the just shall live by faith. In the, righteous, in, the, in the gospel of Jesus Christ, the righteousness of God is revealed. And we already talked about this. How is worship? True worship is simply what? Obedience. How is righteousness revealed? In right doing. Righteousness, that's a direct quote from Sister White, righteousness is right doing. Righteousness is obedience to the law of God. What did Jesus say about the law of God? Do not think that I came to what? Destroy the law, but to fulfill it. To fulfill it. Christ did, what's fascinating to me about that particular passage, you find that in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 5, is that Jesus specifically said, do not think I came to destroy the law. And how many Christian denominations say, Jesus came to destroy the law. And Jesus himself said, do not think that. And people are like, you need to know, Jesus came to destroy the law. The law was destroyed. No, it wasn't. <laughs> it was fulfilled. It was shown. It was lived out in his life. When Jesus kept the Sabbath, it wasn't like, this is the very last Sabbath humanity will ever have to keep because now it's done. No. <laughs> He's fulfilling it, living it out to live for us the righteousness of God and show us who he really is. Righteousness is revealed in obedience. Which, if you want a couple of texts for that, the book of Hebrews is fantastic. Let me just give you two. Hebrews chapter 4. Speaking of the high priest that we now have in heaven. For we do not have a high priest, speaking of Jesus Christ, who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but was in all points tempted how? As we are, but there was one big distinction between Jesus and us yet without sin. Let us therefore come boldly to the throne of grace that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Hebrews 2, just back before that, starting with verse 14. I can just put these on the board here. I'll add these to our correlated texts. Hebrews 4, uh, I think that was 15, was it? 15, 16? Okay. And um, then we have Hebrews 2, 14 through... 18? Get my, yeah. Inasmuch then, speaking of Jesus, inasmuch then as the children have partaken of flesh and blood, he himself likewise shared in the same, that through death, see if this doesn't sound exactly like 1 John chapter 3, verse 8, that through death he might destroy him who had the power of death, that is, the devil, and release those who through fear of death were all their lifetime subject to bondage. For indeed he does not give aid to angels. Why doesn't Jesus give aid to angels? Because <laughs> those angels in heaven haven't sinned. 
But he came here where we are because we have sinned. For indeed, he does not give aid to angels, but he gives aid to the seed of Abraham. Therefore, in all things, he had to be made like his brethren, that he might be a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For he himself has suffered being tempted. For in that he himself has suffered being tempted, he is able to aid those who are tempted. So Christ came here to live life like we have to face it. But the great distinction between Christ and us, besides the obvious creator-creation, which is inestimable, infathomable difference, but Christ didn't sin, where all the rest of us have. Now, why is that such a critical interest uh, in the great controversy? Because of this. When we go back to our, in our mind to our first opening text here in Job, Couldn't Christ have looked at all the death, just decay, disease, destruction that happened for how many, how many years at that point and say, you shouldn't be here. You're a killer. You're a liar. Couldn't Satan logically and legally come back and say, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. All those people have sinned. And isn't there a law somewhere, God, I think it's your law, that says the wages of sin is death? When I give them cancer or start up a big war or have a, you know, a, well, they didn't have a bus hit them at the time, but a chariot hit them, whatever. When they die at my hands, I'm just executing the demands of your law. Your law says that they all sinned and they all should die. So really, when I kill people, I'm revealing to them who you are. But he couldn't play that game when Jesus came. Because not one time did Jesus ever yield to the temptation of Satan. And when Jesus died on the cross, he was victorious not because he lived, but because he lived perfectly, faithfully. And he sealed his life here on earth with that phrase, it is finished. What was finished? A life of perfect obedience in our humanity. He had shown that Satan is a liar and a murderer. Listen to this. This is the first element of the spirit of prophecy. I'm giving you this as extra credit. You can go all of this from the Bible, of course. But I want you to see how Sister White saw this and wrote about it beautifully. You find this in the desire of age. Oh, oh, this is the text you have to have before that. I'm sorry. One more text. Then we're coming for a landing. Almost exactly in an hour. You're welcome. John chapter 12, verse 31 and 32. This is your number five text. You gotta land here. John chapter 12, 31 and 32. Jesus, as he sees his death at Calvary approaching, says this statement. Now is the judgment of this world. Now, people will say, ah, oh, the judgment happened at the cross. Well, yes, it did, but in what aspect? Jesus defines it. Notice what he says. Now is the judgment of this world. Now the ruler of this world, who's he speaking of? Satan, the devil, will be cast out. 
Now you should have a little cognitive dissonance going on. Wait a minute. I thought he was cast out up in heaven 4,000 years ago. Is there a second casting out? Yes. Yes, there is. And we're going to see exactly what that is in just a second. But he will be cast out. Verse 32, and he explains what he's talking about. It's Calvary. And I, if I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all peoples to myself. By the way, that word peoples in there is in italics. It's an inserted word to help us understand, but I believe it includes both men and angels. I'll show you why in just a second. But I will draw all peoples to myself. This he said, signifying by what death he would die. Remember, the accusation was, you're not a God of love. Yes, I am. No, you're not. Yes, you am. No, I'm not. No, you're not. But when Jesus surrendered himself and gave himself, by the way, how many times did the Bible put that? Who loved me and gave himself for me. The very definition of love was demonstrated in the sacrifice of Christ. And for the first time in the universe's history, two things were clearly seen. Number one, they saw who God really is. They had loved him before, they had sung his praises, they obeyed his law. They had believed him by faith, but now they have sight. And they see the heart of God on full display in the man Christ Jesus. But the second thing they see is the exact opposite. They see the truth about Satan. That he really, that dude would kill anybody. It had nothing to do with whether they sinned or not. He just hates God. And that whole God doesn't love you, he just is all about himself. That's a lie. He is a liar and a murderer, just like Jesus said. So at the cross of Calvary, two things were demonstrated to the onlooking universe. Those sons of God and the unfallen angels. They saw who God really was and they saw who Satan really was. Notice what Sister White says about this with her third grade education, please. Desire of Ages, page 61. For your shorthand folks, DA761. Could one sin have been found in Christ had he in one particular yielded to Satan to escape the terrible torture, the enemy of God and man would have triumphed. Notice there's that enemy language again, Matthew 13. Christ bowed his head and died but he held fast his faith and his submission to God. And by the way, so the plot will thicken and we can let this marinate for our next course here. If you were to talk about the death of Christ on the cross and you wanted to support that with scripture, you would likely go to one of the gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, or John, or perhaps the writing of the apostle Paul who determined to know nothing among you except Christ and him crucified. But you know where she quotes well, I'll tell you right now. It's Revelation chapter 12, but it's not verse 7, 8, or 9. It's verse 10. Quote, And I heard a loud voice saying in heaven, Now is come salvation and strength and the kingdom of our God and the power of his Christ, for the accuser of our brethren is cast down. We're going to reveal this a little later on, but when we talk about the four steps, this is why I talk about it in distinct steps, because there are four distinct steps in the casting out of Lucifer. Revelation 12, verse 10. 
She explains what this means. She continues, Satan saw that his disguise was torn away. He was hanging out before the universe with his face exposed, his heart on full display. Satan saw that his disguise was torn away. His administration was laid open before the unfallen angels and before the heavenly universe. He had revealed himself as a murderer. By shedding the blood of the Son of God, he had uprooted himself from the sympathies of the heavenly angels, as heavenly beings. Henceforth, his work was restricted. And think back to Job. Henceforth, his work was restricted. Whatever attitude he might assume, he could no longer await the angels as they came from the heavenly courts and before them accused Christ's brethren of being clothed with the garments of blackness and the defilement of sin. Listen to this crazy sentence. The last link of sympathy between Satan and the heavenly world was broken. Think about the depth of that, friends. Until Jesus died on the cross, there was some link of sympathy between Satan and his angels and the unfallen hosts of heaven. Now, they weren't on his side, but they were like, let's at least hear him out. But when they saw Calvary, henceforth his work was restricted. And I don't believe it's because Jesus had to put up a big wall or a flaming sword or something like that. It's that no one's listening to that junk anymore. Satan can come up, hey man, remember that? Shut up. Hey, you mind if I come in? No, get out. Man, you, you're always just, I don't, care, I don't care if you come across as grumpy or happy or sly. I don't care what you do. We saw Calvary. You shut up. Christ doesn't have to build a wall. He just has to show the truth for what it is. And all those heavenly beings are like, we were on his side before, but now we're his forevermore. Final thought. Signs of the Times, December 30, 1889. Remember I made that crazy, audacious claim that Jesus died for the angels in heaven who didn't even sin? Listen to this. Signs of the Times, December 30, 1889. S.T. December 30, 1889. Listen very carefully. Speaking of those unfallen hosts of heaven, the sons of God, the angels... The angels ascribe honor and glory to Christ, for even they are not secure, except by looking to the sufferings of the Son of God. It is through the efficacy of the cross that the angels of heaven are guarded from apostasy. Notice they're not saved from it, but they're guarded from entering in. It is through the efficacy of the cross that angels of heaven are guarded from apostasy. Without the cross... They would be no more secure against evil than were the angels before the fall of Satan. By the way, Satan started off in a perfect place. Sometimes we think we need a Satan to fall. Who was Satan's Satan? Sometimes we think well, we're, going to ha- we're going to be secure for all eternity because Satan will be gone and temptation. No. There's always going to be the choice to rebel. But the reason the angels are secure and the redeemed will be secure is not because there's no more choice, it's just no one will choose it again. Listen. Without the cross, they would be no more secure against evil than were the angels before the fall of Satan. Angelic perfection failed in heaven. Human perfection failed in Eden, the paradise of bliss. All who wish for security in earth or heaven must look to the Lamb of God. The plan of salvation, making manifest the justice and love of God, provides an eternal safeguard against against defection in unfallen worlds, as well as among those who shall be redeemed by the blood of the Lamb. 
Our only hope is perfect trust in the blood of him who can save to the uttermost all that come unto God by him. I don't know about you, but that's a powerful thought. That the great controversy is bigger than just us in this world. There's an entire universal platform he's trying to redeem and reconcile his whole created universe through the blood of Jesus Christ. This is not taking anything from the cross. It's putting it in its proper context and it gives light to the whole plan. Is this making sense? Can we bow our heads real quick? Heavenly Father, thank you again for showing us a glimpse of Jesus. Help us to see in Jesus the real character of God. And like the angelic host in heaven, help us to sever any remaining link of sympathy that we might have for the devil. Bring us into reconciliation with you and the rest of the society of heaven. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Great controversy, step three, and we're going to do our best to hit this thing right on the money. Now, what I would do, and again, whenever I present this, and you'll see there's a reason why the, um, the study guides, not only the written study guides were provided, but also the, in the back of, man, let's do this real quick. In the back of your notebook here, there are these, these study guide presentation things. Uh, these are the ones that I made up to go with the Unlock Revelation series, or Keys Revelation, whatever it was, um, whatever iteration of public evangelism it was. But after I do uh, Daniel 1, the next world superpower, and I usually do the signs of the times, but honestly, I've started dropping the signs of the time presentation. I know that sounds heresy, but it's so obvious now that the signs of the times are all around us, I can do that in a 10-minute Q&A. You know? Literally, I've just opened up my Google News Feed and just start reading it, and then read Matthew chapter 24. And we're going to talk about that later this week, exactly. But we will do it in this class, because I have been though thus assigned. That's right. No, but anyway, um, but you'll see that, did God make the devil? This is steps one and two. And um, God on trial, that's the whole Job thing, you know. Steps three, and then uh, I save step four for the millennium. But one, two, and three are covered in this series. I take a couple of extra days and do an expanded study of the great controversy because I feel, I find that it makes all the other stuff, like the Antichrist power, make so much more sense. That once you get that paradigm in your head, that why would there be a power that represents himself as God, standing in the place of God to be worshipped at? Well, because it's just an extension of what we've already studied in heaven. And you put that framework in mind, and like I said, choosing between the Sabbath day isn't you're wrong and I'm right. It's that battle of loyalties is still waging. It's still the great controversy. Anyway, so I like to do that. But um, now I'm going to ask the question. We're just going to launch into it. Um, we've prayed several times. We just want to keep going. The, uh, the question then, if the Son of God, as 1 John chapter 3, verse 8 says, was manifested that he might destroy the works of the devil, and John chapter 12 says, according to Jesus' own lips, now is the judgment of this world. Now the rule of this world will be cast out when he's lifted up, right? He's talking about his death on the cross. And Revelation 12, verse 10. Now has come salvation and strength in the kingdom of our God and the power of his Christ for the, for the accuser of our brethren who accused them before our God day and night has been cast down. If Christ literally had mission accomplished on the cross which he did, it is finished, he said so, then why wasn't Satan killed then? 
Let's, let's wrestle with this for a second. Imagine that you're God the Father watching this unfold, this, 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 this thing that you had on paper, but now it's happening in person. And, and the angels are watching, and they've been wrestling with, should Lucifer actually die for this, or could he just be quarantined in another place? So we really have to make it a capital punishment, a capital offense, and God couldn't just kill him right away. We've already talked about that. They wouldn't understand, right? But now that they've seen Calvary, can't he go ahead and destroy the, the devil? Do you know? Go for it. Yes. The angels are convinced that people are not. Okay. I'm going to say you're halfway right. You have the other half. Are you going to complete the picture? Come on, you're getting close at home. Why would that make a difference if it's just called a plan of destruction? Except it's not called the plan of destruction, is it? It's called the plan of redemption or the plan of salvation. In order for the plan to be complete, something has to be redeemed, bought back, brought back, saved. If God's only objective in the great controversy was legally, justifiably killing Satan and sinners, and destroying sin, and that was it. Could he have destroyed Satan at the cross? Yes. Do you think Gabriel and all the other hosts of heaven would have had any bone to pick with God if he killed Satan then? No. They'd be like, yep, that was the right thing to do. Push the button. End him. But you can imagine God the Father saying, good, it took us 4,000 years, but I'm glad you're finally on board. Now, he said, let's go to phase two. They're like, wait a minute. Phase, what are you talking about, phase two? Because Jesus had more in mind than merely destroying Satan. He actually has the idea of saving sinners. What does Jesus himself say? Luke chapter 19, verse 10. A very famous passage. This is a good one to start here. Luke 19, verse 10. For the Son of Man has come to what? To seek and save that which was lost. Well, I thought it said, for this purpose, the Son of God was manifested and might destroy the works of the devil. Yes, but in addition to destroying the devil, he also wants to save sinners. There's a twofold purpose in his manifestation, in his appearing here, his incarnation and ministry on our behalf. It's not merely to destroy Satan, but also to redeem or save sinners. Now, okay, this should echo, by the way, back to Matthew 13. If you have a study, I would encourage you to go back and take a look at it real quick, but we don't have time now. But remember, why did... The, when, the, when, the, uh, uh, when the servants of the owner understood that there was an enemy and that his works were evil, they said, do you want us then to go and pluck them out? What, but what was the answer? No, lest while you gather them up, you'll also uproot the wheat with them. That all you're going to do is just, you're going to ruin the whole thing. If all he wanted to do was plow over the field, sure, go ahead. Let's start over. But he said, no, 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 no. My goal isn't just to end the tares. I want to save all the wheat. So the only way that can work is to let both grow together until the harvest, which now we can take the deeper step. Isn't it going to be the same people who are sent out at the time of harvest to gather the wheat and the barn and the tares and bind them in bundles for the burn that would have gone in earlier? So what's the difference between then and now? 
I would say that there's a clear distinction at the end where early on they couldn't tell the difference. They just knew something was off and we should just, he's like, whoa, 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 slow down, down, down. you're going to go in there willy-nilly and you're going to uproot some good folks in here. Well, from our perspective, it all looks like, I know that's what it looks like now. <laughs> but you're going to see a distinction. So the question comes up, why didn't Satan die at Calvary too? Now, I'm going to take you back to Desire of Ages 761. Again, we can prove this all from the Bible, but I want you to see what Sister White says. She says it so clearly. So I'll put in here in parentheses, DA 761. Desire of Ages 761. I'm going to start where we already were. She ends that with the last link of sympathy. It was, however she says it, you know, uh, 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 was broken, right? The very next sentence, however, that we didn't read before, we now read. Very next sentence. Yet, Satan was not then destroyed. And she explains why. The angels did not even then understand all that was involved in the great controversy. So there was more involved in the great controversy than merely showing that Satan needed to die. The principles at stake were to be more fully revealed. Notice this crazy sentence. And for the sake of man, Satan's existence must be continued. <laughs> Let's hear it again. And for the sake of man, Satan's existence must be continued. You think that says, people would say that's the crazy cult you belong to. But what did Jesus say in Matthew chapter 13? No, lest while you gather them up, you also uproot the wheat with them. Let both grow together until the harvest. It's in the best interest of the wheat that the tares be allowed to grow. Somehow it is in man's best interest that the great controversy continue and that Satan's existence be prolonged. I know that seems counter, uh, like, but let's just end war and disease and pestilence right now. It's like, I'm with you. I like the idea, but we want to make sure we do it right. Because we go in too early, it won't fix the problem. So here's the issue. And for the sake of man, still in Desire of Ages 761, and for the sake of man, Satan's existence must be continued. Man, as well as angels, must see the contrast between the Prince of Light and the Prince of Darkness. He must choose whom he will serve. The angels have chosen whom they will serve. But God has more in mind than just saving the angels and destroying Satan. He wants to save sinners out from under Satan. And that's a whole different nut to crack. John chapter 14. I told you this is going to be a simple study. This is quick and easy. John 14, verses 1 through 3. I like to imagine, this is one of the most famous passages of Scripture, by the way. We're all very familiar, I would hope. If not, you're going to love it. <laughs> it's a beautiful promise that Christ gives. But I imagine that as Christ was standing there, saying this just astonishing, beautiful, wonderful promise, that the angels of heaven... We're listening in on every word that Jesus did, every action he took. And as they heard him say this, they had a different reaction than what we would have. John chapter 14, look at verse 1. Jesus says to us sinful people, let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. 
In my father's house are many mansions. Parenthetical pause. He did not say, in my father's house will be many mansions when I go back and build them. He said that in my father's house are many mansions. Why are there empty mansions in heaven, friends? There's been a great evacuation. By the way, when I present this, I like to call it vacancies in heaven. Sister White uses that word. That the redeemed, God intends for the redeemed to fill the vacancies made in heaven by Satan and his angels. I thought about titling it like Life in Satan's Old House, right? <laughs> but I'm guessing if Gabriel's his next door neighbor, he's got a concern about that, right? But again, think about this statement from heaven's perspective. Quickly, yes, ma'am. Yes, ma'am. Now, I don't want to get into that because I don't know. If it turns out on the other end of eternity, we're like, hey, that theory was right. I'll be like, high five. <laughs> but until then, I'm not going to venture over that line. But I do know that I'm encouraged that maybe he'll have to build more. That'd be great. <laughs> I don't know. All I want to know is there's room for me. Right? Yeah. <laughs> and maybe he'll employ us. I don't know how it's going to work. Anyway, um, but notice this. In my father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. I'm the one who tells the truth. Remember? <laughs> I go to prepare a place for you. Now that means spiritually prepare, to make a way so that you can come there. Verse 3, And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself, that where I am, there you may be also. And every one of us says, Amen! What a promise! The angel, and Gabriel's like, Huh? <laughs> Slow down. I thought he went down there to destroy the works of the devil, to show that he's a liar and a murderer, all this other stuff. You mean to tell us he wants to bring them here? And those empty mansions are going to be filled with those people. And God the Father's like, yes, that's my plan. How do you like it? Woo! And we're like, it's a great plan, God! <laughs> Gabriel's like, by the way, is Gabriel still loyal to God? Yeah. Absolutely. Do you think he has some questions for God? Yes, indeed. Like, how? I mean, all have sinned. And what if God's only answer was, yeah, but don't worry about it. Trust me. It'll be fine. It's the same answer that didn't work when Satan was cast out of heaven. It won't work now. Because the truth must be demonstrated, not just proclaimed. That's great. And now they're saying, let's see somebody take him up on it. <laughs> That's right. Now let's go on. Let's describe this from Scripture. Let's go to 1 Corinthians chapter 4. In verse, there's a couple passages. Paul talks about this reconciliation of heaven and earth, bringing them all together again. And that's the purpose of where we're going here. Um, and there is another one that I forgot to put in my notes, and I forget it. Um, uh, let's see here. We'll just start to, which is 1 Corinthians chapter 4, uh, verse 19, I mean verse 9. Uh, well, anyway, I, I don't have it most, but you can look it up. Uh, 
the concept of reconciliation, where God has in mind the reconciliation, not just of people to each other and us to God, but also all angels and earth, heaven and earth brought together as one. Yes, sir. Is this point three or is this Oh, I'm sorry. This is going to be number three. Thank you. Uh, what I'd like to do here is, well, it's a subtext. Sorry. And most of you don't care, but to me, this is, it, it's easier for my brain. Uh, I would say 1 Corinthians 9. No, hang on. I'm just, I don't want to overburden you with stuff. So let's just skip this one. It's a good one. I'll sh- look, just read it. <laughs> yeah, I know, you're killing, I'm killing you. But notice what he says. Paul speaks here in 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 9. For I think that God has displayed us. The apostles last as men condemned to die, for we've been made a spectacle to the world. And what's his definition of the world? Both to angels and to men. The idea, Paul writes as though he's being watched. Not just by the onlooking, you know, Hebrews who don't like him and the Gentiles who don't know him. He's talking about the world that God created, the entire universe. Angels and men are watching God's people. That's what you're trying to establish with that text. So if you want to put that in there, that's fine. 1 Corinthians 4, verse 9. But the best, best concept, is the best articulation of this is found here. And this is where I wanted to get to. Ephesians 3, 8 through, let's say, 11. Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, it's that little... And, and when you do that, when you're studying with people, don't be afraid to walk them to the book. They don't know the books of the Bible, friends. They don't. For the most part. Especially if you're like, let's go to Colossians. They're like, give me a minute. <laughs> and they're going to look through the table of contents, right? Yeah. <laughs> and you're like, you better know that. But Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, all these little books are kind of in a sandwich there. And Ephesians is right there in the middle. Ephesians chapter 3. It's helpful. It's just true. But I, I, like, I'll even do so far as like, go to your left, go to your right. You know, uh, it's towards the back. Next to. Right next to. If you can find, like, how do you find Daniel? The very first one is Daniel. They've never looked up Daniel. Just open to the middle, you know. And if they hit something to the left, go, like, right, you're almost there. Go to the right. Ezekiel, then Daniel. But just get, help them out. They'll appre- and, and I know it's going to feel like you're talking down to them, but they need the help. And they won't, it'll feel like it to you, but for this, them. This is how I find it. Yeah, this, exactly. That's how I find it. It's, it's just, it's just simple for them. And I do the same things too. When I think of Galatians, I go Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians. You just go with your head. It's fine. Anyway, Ephesians chapter 3, Paul is describing his, and if you were to ask anybody, any Christian, what is Paul's, what was Paul's job description? He was to be the apostle to the Gentiles, right? He says as much. Verse 8, to me, who am less than the least of all the saints, this grace was given that I should preach among the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ. And you think, oh, that's a nice little tidy statement. But then he adds, and, verse 9, more than that, and to make all see what is the fellowship of the mystery. Now what? Preaching Christ, I understand, but making people see the fellowship of the mystery? What are you talking about, Paul? Well, he goes on to explain. Which from the beginning of the ages has been hidden in God, who created all things through Jesus Christ. So there's some mystery that's been hidden in God from the very beginning 
that now it's time to make everyone see. There's some plan, there's some idea, there's some wisdom of God, a mystery, that God has had in himself, that now it's time to put on full display for everyone to see. Weird. The key comes in verse 10. To the intent that now, the manifold wisdom of God, manifold means a bunch of complicated parts coming together, right? The manifold wisdom of God, this mystery, this plan, might be made known by the church to the principalities and powers in heavenly places, according to the eternal purpose which he accomplished in Christ Jesus our Lord. So in line and harmony with, through the power of what Jesus did, now God wants to, his intent is that the wisdom of God might be made known, and look very carefully, made known to whom? Look at your Bibles. It is not to be made known to the church. It's to the principalities and powers. And where are those principalities and powers? In heavenly places. So where does God live? Heaven. The people he's trying to teach live where? In heaven. And he wants to make known this mystery, this manifold wisdom, his plan, his big idea. And he's in heaven and they're in heaven. Wouldn't be the simplest thing to do is turn to them and explain it? Like, hey, here's my plan. (laughs) But how does he teach it to them? By what agent? The church. God has a plan. He has this plan of redemption, which is from the beginning of the ages, hidden in God, that he wants to make known to the other inhabitants of heaven. And he could say, look, here's my plan. I'm going to bring them up here. Are we good? (laughs) They're going to be like, nope. (laughs) Why not? Because a proclamation of the truth is not what is needed. A demonstration of the truth is sufficient. Let me put it in terms that are simpler. In the same way, the loyal inhabitants of heaven needed to see a reason why Satan should die. They now need to see a reason why any of us should be allowed to live. Right? That whole For this purpose, the Son of God was manifest that he might destroy the works of the devil. They're on board with that. They're like, go ahead, push the button. End him. Blot him out. But that second phase of, and has come to seek and to save that which is lost. And that where I am, they may be also. We're still with you, God. But we need to see the evidence that your plan makes sense. Now, they're not disloyal, but they have some questions. How does it work? And God doesn't just say, don't worry about it, trust me. They'll be fine. We haven't seen any evidence of it yet. (laughs) That's why sanctification is the evidence of justification. Right? That's why faith without works is dead. It's just theory. It's just on paper. I mean, you can sing a good song, but let's see it lived out. The Upward Look, page 61. Again, this is just in-house here. And there are, by the way, there are so many, so many passages from the Spirit of Prophecy say that exact same thing. The idea that God's wisdom will be revealed in His people, that His character will be seen in His people. 
that they will be, what was the old Adventist term? Safe to save. Oh, I'm just, I'm just spouting off right now. <laughs> but, the, but the concept is there. That friends, physically transporting us to heaven is not hard. Right? No. And how about this? Even giving us brand new bodies at a second coming, is that hard for God? No. The one thing that God won't give you at the second coming, however, is a new character. For this reason, a body can be given, but character must be grown. And it only happens through decisions that you make over time. Now, you're going to have missteps, sure. But do you get back up? Do you walk with Christ in newness of life and start again and cover the same ground and this time get victory? We have too much victory in theory. What we need is victory in Jesus. The angels of God are looking not just to see that we're called good on paper, but they want to see that God can make us good in person. The whole evangelical Christian world, the whole ecumenical Christian whatever, loves the pardon that Christ offers on the cross. But friends, he offers more than pardon, he offers power as well. I take a whole second night for that, just so you know. That's night number five on a Revelation campaign. We come in, now what do we do with this thing? We're living in step three. And we go to the salvation study. But the upward look, page 61, this is just in-house extra credit. By the power of his love, through obedience, fallen man, a worm of the dust, is to be transformed, fitted to be a member of the heavenly family, a companion through eternal ages of God and Christ and the holy angels. Heaven will triumph, for the vacancies made by the fall of Satan and his host will be filled by the redeemed of the Lord. That's just one of several. That was Upward Look, page 61, UL61. Let me close with this. One minute from 12. I'm telling you, this is spot on. <laughs> Let me show you two texts. And this would be, you can share this one here. We'll make this a third one here. Because like this is so short. Well, let's give you two more texts. Luke 10. 17 and 18, as well as um, Revelation 12, 12. And this time we'll go all the way 7 through 11. And you'll start to see something pretty cool. You said there are these four, I told you there's these four distinct phases, four steps in the destruction of Satan and the ending of the great controversy. And I, I'm not making that up. I'm saying the Bible outlines that the spirit prophecy specifically articulates these four steps both the Bible and the Spirit of Prophecy do, and I want to share that with you. Let me share you this one thing here. In Luke chapter 10, Jesus had sent out the 70, where in Luke chapter 9, he sent out the 12, Luke chapter 10, he sent, uh, sends out the 70, which by the way, Jesus was a living, breathing, training center for Christian workers. He did not just come to minister, but to teach others how to minister. He said, come follow me, I'll make you fishers of men. If all you do is go to church to receive, you're not going to church for the right reason. You're there to be trained to win souls and hasten the coming of Jesus. Anyway, little sermonette. Luke chapter 10, 
They come back from their mission in verse 17. Then the 70 returned with joy saying, Lord, even the demons are subject to us in your name. I wonder if it broke his heart a little bit. Like, why are you surprised? <laughs> like, that's why I sent you out. They're like, Lord, you'll never believe it. It worked. Yes, I know. <laughs> that's the whole thing. <laughs> but notice this almost non sequitur adds in verse 18. And he said to them, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. And he moves on. Behold, I give you the authority to trample on serpents and scorpions, blah, 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 blah. But he starts his premise with, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. What does that mean? Now, when we think of lightning, I almost guarantee you the first thing you think that lightning means is speed. Quick as lightning, right? Fast as grease lightning. You heard that? I don't think that's what Jesus meant when he said he fell like lightning from heaven. I do that on pretty good authority because there's another person from heaven that Jesus describes coming like lightning. And it's not Satan. Any guesses? It's Jesus. <laughs> Matthew chapter 24. What does Jesus say about his own coming? Verse 26, 27, and Matthew chapter 24, this is a little corollary verse here that goes along with this one. Matthew 24, uh, 26 and 27. Notice what Jesus says about his own coming. He said, therefore, if they say to you, look, he is in the desert, do not go out. Or look, he's in the inner rooms, do not believe it. For as the lightning comes from the east and flashes to the west, so also will the coming of the Son of Man be. When Jesus employs the metaphor of lightning, like lightning, what does he mean? He talks, he's not talking about speed, he's talking about visibility. And every eye shall see him. When Satan falls like lightning from heaven, it's done in such a way that every eye will see him. Yeah? What's that? I saw something. No, let's... let's uh, almost. Almost. This is where we get to our next text, okay? Now go to Revelation 12. Oh, sorry, on the board. Anticipated the question. Beautiful. Revelation 12. Is the fall of Satan past tense? Present tense or future tense? And the answer is yes. <laughs> Let's see if we can walk through and find our distinct steps of the fall of Satan in Revelation. Starting with chapter 12, verse 7. Are we there? All right. And war broke out in heaven. Michael and his angels fought with the dragon, and the dragon and his angels fought, but they did not prevail, nor was a place found for them in heaven any longer. So the great dragon was cast out, that serpent of old called the devil and Satan, who deceives the whole world. He was cast to the earth, and his angels were cast out with him. Seven through nine is step number one, where he was initially cast out of the courts of heaven. Number two is found in verse 10. Mrs. White already have identified it for us. Then I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, Now salvation and strength and the kingdom of our God and the power of his Christ have come. For the accuser of our brethren, who accused them before our God day and night, has been cast down. She did not apply that to the fall of Satan from originally being casting out of heaven. She applied that to Christ's death on the cross. By the way, Jesus did too. Remember Romans chapter 12, verses 31 and 32? Now is the judgment of this world. Now the ruler of this world will be cast out. Is there a second casting out in Revelation? Yes. 
There's the initial casting out from the courts of heaven. There's a next casting out, the next step, when Jesus died on the cross. So what's step three? Well, let's just keep reading. By the way, that's how most all Bible controversies are ever uh, 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 resolved. Just keep reading. Verse 11. And they, who they? The brethren, right? That's, that's a pronoun modifying the brethren who have been accused now. The downtrodden, the oppressed, those sinners. Verse 11, and they overcame him. By what agent? By the blood of the lamb and by the word of their testimony. And they did not love their lives to the death. They have become in character just like Jesus. Step number three is when the righteous, those for whom Christ died, take him up on his offer. And they no longer have sympathy for Satan either. And we're going to have to hit step four when we come back a couple days from now. Please, please do your best. Don't die between now and then. <laughs> you should do, that's good advice for any day you're living. Don't, don't die today or the next day. Just keep living. Um, but there's a study here. But, but, but to close it off, this will help you with your study. Did anybody ever play with, with that little coiled silver toy when you were a kid? What is it? Slinky. Now, I, I saw some kids playing with the slinky at my little trailer this week, and they didn't know how to play with it either. Because um, what do you do with a slinky? The first thing you do is you do it like this, and that lasts for like 20 seconds. Like, well, and then what? And then you go, both hands are like, oh, and that takes. But there's one really cool thing the slinky can do. What is that? Walk down. Walk down. Thank you. And if you get the, just the right flight of stairs at just the right height, and at just the right, uh, and you give it just the right nudge just to start it, then it goes the next step, but then it goes to the one after it. It just keeps walking until all the steps are done. I would leave this with you in your mind. That that initial casting out of Satan started the slinky down the steps. There are four distinct steps from that initial one, then two, three, and finally four, when Satan will finally be destroyed. Friends, number one is long ago, 4,000 years, 6,000 years ago, I should say. 2,000 years ago, step number two happened. I'll give you a hint. After Christ's second coming, at the end of the millennium, will be the final step, step four. But we're living in step three. God has already kicked him out of heaven and he's already demonstrated that he should die. The question left is, why should any of us live? And the answer is the righteousness of Jesus Christ. On us covering our past and in us giving us power for future temptation. That he's actually rebuilding in us his own character. That we will be as the pioneers would say, safe to save. That we can go home and it's going to be fine. But we'll come back to that at another time. Have we been clear today? Let's bow our heads. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for being a God who takes his time to get things right. Thank you for this study and thank you that you've communicated your wisdom to us. And now, Lord, help us not in our own power or our own merit or anything like that, but by your grace, your pardon, your power alone. 
sever whatever remaining links of sympathy there might be in our hearts for Satan and his ways. Help us to see that he truly is a liar and a murderer, but in Jesus Christ we can have a life and have it more abundantly. Lord, keep us faithful and useful until you come. For we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.